you doing here, honey? You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Obviously, Doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 25, or as I call it, How to Make Podcasts and Lose Friends. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we've been saving this one. We've been talking it up. We, you know, Hopefully everyone's ready for the fireworks um, after some, some respectful you know, you know, uh, episodes in which we... we uh, articulated our differences of opinion very respectfully. You seem to be of the opinion that this one's going to drive a massive, unfixable wedge between us. Well, the interesting thing about the movie that we'll talk about at 25, uh, just, just to preface it, is the fact that we were friends when I saw this movie. You know, we're, yeah. we're good friends by this point. Mm-hmm. Good friends who had vehemently talked about film. Uh, this was on my best picture list of 2015 when it came out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you said you were going to get around to it. I was like, I don't know if you like it, you know, don't. And I just kept talking about talking about it. You're like, I should see it. And um, this movie, in fact, actually led me. It was one of the things that kind of led me to wanting to do like a pivotal film list because it was, you know, I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, and then by that point, I was like, well, Tom's going to have to see it. And, you know, that's two years ago, <laughs> a little over two years ago now. We talked like over two years ago, we talked about this in a, uh, side street cafe yep. and, and i was like tom you can't see this until we get to it you have to wait 75 weeks rethought until <laughs> until then and it has turned into you know two and a half years that we've been waiting well there, uh, we're almost at the two year almost two year anniversary of this podcast it's, so it's been almost about, yeah a few weeks it's been a little over two years now um that 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 you well, said you were going to see it, and then we've, 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 I specifically said you could not. And it's very funny because I listen to a lot of you know movie podcasts, and at some point, seasonally or in accordance with whenever this type of movie you know traditionally comes out, this movie always gets brought up, and it's like, well, it's not like this movie, um, you know, it's it's more like this movie and not like that movie, and the and the either this or that movie is always the movie we're going to talk about. For your twenty-five, and along with like three or four other movies that somehow make up some new, you know, Hacksaw uh, Ridge. You're talking your movie. You're talking about Hacksaw Ridge, right? Hacksaw Ridge could be included in this if we really wanted to. Um, some, oh, I want to hear your thoughts when we get to that point. <laughs> some new, some new kind of vernacular for talking about film that got made up in the two thousands. You know what I mean? Or in the two thousand tens. And if one of those movies come out, they're always like, well, how does it compare to these three movies or these four movies? And, and, and now, we'll, now we are free to hash it out, Mario. We, we, yeah, because we've now... I've seen it two times. You've now seen all those movies. I've seen all those movies, yeah. Oh, you froze for me. Yeah. So, um, 25, though, big, big part. We're into the final leg of this, this podcast. I mean, really, does that doesn't mean anything because we start and stop with ever so great frequency. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, here we are. 
at the at the part of the list where things should get really dicey and interesting. Uh, well, my, I think well, I think so, we're was, past we're past those movies that like we kind of just logically talk about. You well, know? I think the kind of yeah. The bummer thing I think for like the next five or six movies for me is that some of them are movies that we're going to talk about in the future, and some of them are movies that we've already talked about, and a couple of them are movies that are there is not a lot left to say regarding those movies, but mm. we will we will do our best to kind of get to muscle through those and to uh, develop our our kind of backstory for those to make those interesting. But I think it's fitting Mario that we're returning for such a, a pivotal episode. We're returning to I think our most dranked drunketh uh beer brand brewery that's what they call them right yes. breweries i believe i believe so <laughs> um this is a, a beer that i've been drinking uh this throughout the quarantine as soon as it became available i was drinking it it is new england breweries brewing company's yard party it's a pale ale of 5.2 percent alcohol by volume uh let me read the back for you folks. This hazy pale ale is mostly dosed with Vic Street, Vic Secret hops, and a bit of mosaic too. This gives a lively aroma of tropical fruits. The use of oats and balanced bitterness leave you with a nice, clean mouthfeel. The perfect sessionable beer beer for your yard parties, wherever that may be. There's no puns. Sessionable in that. beer. Oh, it's a five, it's a five point two. Yeah, there's a, a distinct lack. Well, of, there's the, of the puns. last the last. Wherever that may be, I mean, the cover art is a bunch of inmates having a party. Yeah. So I guess wherever that may be is the one that's a that's like a slight little play. I don't know. I expect more puns. Um, 5.2 seems a little bit much for a sessionable beer, though. Um, Yeah, but it's not. All right. Ready? Oh, okay. Got to pop this oh. top. Oh, God. Got some beer on the new Pivotal film table. Oh, good. Good. It needs to be christened. Uh, the sad thing for drink it as I drink about drink this and, and think about my my opinions on it. The sad thing about today's episode was we were actually hoping, with the lifting re- um, restrictions, to have this one be the first episode in person mm. again. Um, and it, in fact, for the occasion, what was going to be rounded out was I actually have a new setup here in the Pivotal Film Studio. We used to have an old table that was pretty broken apart with chairs that had pieces of them falling apart um but unfortunately some bethany driver decided that that wasn't in the cards for you uh, yeah he decided that his middle of the road reverse was very important to do and uh to slam into us and ruin our car and ruin our weekend that weekend last what, weekend uh, what a dick he is uh i've been referring to him in my text messages when i tell people what happened as a douchebag I mean, to be fair, that's what I—that's what I've always called you. So I—I I, I didn't know it was any different. Listen, it was gonna—it ha- was bound to happen one of these days. I got myself an ATV. I literally shoot fireworks off of my porch every night at one o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah. Why is everyone doing that everywhere? It's freedom, Mario. That's what it means to be free. They are like, I'm not gonna wear a mask, and I can shoot. I mean, it's—I guess it goes hand in hand. Um, I'm not gonna wear a mask, and I'm also going to interrupt people's usual sleeping time yeah that's just you know it's because pretty... nobody cares about anybody anymore this is why america exists i'm pretty sure and you know what you know where those sentiments are often felt tom the sentiments <laughs> like that or at least the, the film oh we didn't even talk the about the beer how was the beer today we didn't talk about oh, the right the beer 
Well, um, the sentiments I have for Yard Party are pretty strong. It is very sessionable. Yep. The mouth, it, 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 it tastes good. Like, I enjoy the flavor. It's got, like, a nice citrus. Not citrus. It's got, like, a tropical fla- a tropical fruit flavor. Yeah. They kind of expect from a, a New England-style IPA, but it's a little, but it's a lot more sessionable. But it's that mouthfeel that is, is the best part of it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's refreshing. It's a beer that I want after a run. Yeah, I um I haven't been doing any of that, but it is like the hot night, like as soon as the kids go to bed, like sitting down on the couch and watching some terrible show on Netflix. The yard party has been making it feel a little better. It's kind of it's been you know how you have just like a standard beer in your fridge. It's like a beer that's kind of always in your fridge, and sometimes you have good stuff, but you always have this yard party has been that for me, for the quarantine. So. You know, do you know what it's been for me? Sea egg. You, you probably guess sea egg. Yeah. Sea egg. There you go. I've had, had a lot of sea eggs. Just finally ran out of my birthday sea eggs. What? I thought you were never going to run out yeah. of those. I took almost a month. I suppose. And true. I shared some. I suppose that's true. I'm sorry. I shared like four of them. Just... I mean, it's it. The, that refrigerator will be filled with sea hag again this weekend. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm doing a drinking game actually tomorrow to the movie Super Mario Brothers. Um. Uh, I'll probably drink sea hack to that. Oh, nice. Cool. We've been looking for yeah, stuff to know. do at the library, like events that I can plan. Maybe that'll be, maybe that should be one Dr- of them. Drinking games? Is it like a Zoom meeting like- thing? Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Partially. I mean, a few of us are going to be here, but mostly everyone else is going to be on. Oh, okay. Zoom. But you know what? It's it's the part of hanging out, right, Tom? You got to hang out. And. Hang it out with your douchebag friends sometimes. <laughs> I, love, I love my friends, but I need the seg into this. Um, Do some of them sometimes movie. tattoo kids? Oh, obviously. <laughs> and they like to steal Oxycontin from pharmacies uh, where yeah. CGI blood gets to happen. Uh, of course, we're talking about this week's film, the uh, Judd Apatel uh, short feature, uh, The King of Staten Island. I want to become a real tattoo artist. Your work is mad and consistent. Obama ain't right. Oh, I love your tattoos. This is my favorite. I've been dating someone for a little while now. The first guy you date in 17 years is a fireman just like that? You don't think that's weird? You're going to have to pull your weight a little more around here. Maybe help Ray get his kids to school. Kelly, do you know him? He's a new friend. You okay? You know, you can tell me. I'm okay. Oh, I trained her in the car. She's not going to break. She like the short feature. Yeah. Do you always want to call it the last king of Staten Island? Because I do. Yeah, actually, I kind of do. I yeah. kept waiting for Forrest Whitaker's Amin to come up and hang Pete Davidson by chains in an airport hangar. But it never happened. It didn't happen. In King of Staten Island, uh, a world-renowned cinematographer is kidnapped by a meteor director oh, in 2019 to film the passion project of a pretty substandard comedian thoughts on this film tom oh um I by didn't... the way the first thing the first thing i have to say though robert Elswit, i don't i was so i was so d- disappointed like I, the movie hadn't even started yet and i saw his name pop up and i know he's done other films of this ilk but I was so just disappointed when I saw his name come up. Well, we'll go. So, well, let's do our thing, and then let's. I'm going to write down Robert Elswit so we can talk about it more. Vel- same thing happened with Velvet Buzzsaw and all that. Yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw um, says we lost. We did skyscraper. But anyways, uh, 
Ends kick of Staten Island. Scott is a 24-year-old who's just kind of bumming around his mom's house. And his sister uh, is going off to college and worried about Scott just bumming around, smoking weed, and doing nothing with his friends in the basement except selling some Oxycontin to little kids. Uh, his sister travels away, and Scott's personalities and behaviors continue to wreak havoc on his family. Uh, he tattoos a small child on a beach, and that small child ends up being the son of Ray, played by Bill Burr, who goes and demands that they pay for the tattoo removal. But uh, in doing so, he meets Marissa Tomei, um, who's Scott's mother, whose character's name, I, Margie. And he becomes smitten. And and Ray and Margie start dating. But unfortunately, Ray is a firefighter, much like Scott's deceased father, who he has hero worship for 17 years. Ray, I mean, Scott attempts to dismantle the relationship with Ray while Ray tries to make some amends with Scott. Um, meanwhile, uh, Scott's friends plan to rob a pharmacy for Oxycontin over after night. And uh, he is sleeping with his longtime friend, Kelsey, and telling her that he's never going to do anything serious with her because of his trauma. Uh, eventually, uh, his behavior and Ray's behavior leads to them both being thrown out of the house by Margie. Um, and Scott's friends are arrested. Kelsey wants nothing to do with him for his quasi-manipulative behavior. And Scott has to stay with Ray begrudgingly at the firehouse where he uh, matures, does odd jobs, and learns about his dad eventually, and then everything coalesces and is fine in the end. The end. Uh, my personal take on this film has slightly prefaced by my Robert Ellswit hilarious comedy bit in the beginning <laughs> of this little uh, block is that this film is a torturous experience for its first two thirds, buoyed down and, and handcuffed by Judd Apatow's incessant need to block out every minor detail of every minor plot point that will follow while following a actor who is seemingly, in Pete Davidson, who is seemingly incapable even when the script calls for him to have some sort of redemptive arc to do so with any sort of success and instead plays a character who you just want to see fail and possibly get hit by a bus. This film is only balanced out by a solid supporting performance by Bill Burr's Ray and a few other slight uh, quasi okay, very minor performances and Steve Buscemi and, um, uh, what was it? What was that fellow's name? Moises Aras. Yes, Moises Igor. Aras. Yeah. And uh, also Marissa Tomei. Uh, if this film had just been Margie and Ray having a race ship problems as Margie tries to get over a dead husband and Judd Apatow had it made it, it would have been a much more better better film. Much more better. Much better film. It's fine. You're allowed. Uh, I agree with you uh, 100%, although I suppose it can't be 100% because I'm not sure that the, the ending... Uh, even though it tries to come together at the end, I'm not sure it actually ever actually ever gets there uh, because I don't even think it's just Pete Davidson. I think the script and for some reason, Judd Apatow, who was involved in writing the script, refused to let him grow. And well, so Pete Davidson, 
also helped write the script. Sure, sure, so. sure. But like Judd Apatow, I, I imagine if Pete, Judd Apatow was like, well, that doesn't work, Pete. Pete would just be like, okay, fine, we'll change it. And, <laughs> oh, sorry, you have to be right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't get it. I think, uh, yeah, I I didn't uh, for for the first hour and a half, hour and forty minutes of this movie, I didn't understand why the hell I was watching it. And both me and my wife were just kind of like looking at our phones for something else to do because it was just awful. I mean, <laughs> the first hour and forty minutes of this movie is awful. Um, yeah, I watched this. I watched this with my roommate, and we shared very similar sentiments, and that we were discussing how little we liked what was happening. Yeah. But I think let's go when we, from a digging in perspective. I think it's helpful to start with the Robert Elswit thing because it's for a guy who is as decorated and well regarded as they come uh, from uh, in the cinematographer game. There was that one shot, and I thought it was indicative of kind of everything that was happening with this movie, where where Scott goes to pick up Ray's kids. Ray de- conceives of this kind of punishment for Scott, and Scott to learn some some redemptive – or Scott to learn some responsibility has to go walk Ray's kids to school. He has to walk to his ex-wife's house, pick up his kids, and then walk them to their school. And there's this shot – Right after he does it, after he talks to a weirdly, weirdly used Pamela Adlon, where he's just standing on their front lawn trying to hold on to these two kids' hands, like about to walk across the street, and it's there's no sound, there's no score, it's just him, and he's just awkward, and he's like holding these kids' hands, and I think Judd Apatow meant for it to be like, well, Scott is awkward. But we know Scott is awkward because this moment comes 40 minutes into this movie. So the shot comes off seeming like it's searching for some... It's just waiting there for somebody to do something to make this shot worth the effort that it took to fucking shoot it. And I think that's the case with the with the acting for 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 a large part except for like the ones you pointed out but i, I can i can i want to go into the mercatomies thing with the script but also with the judd apatow way of making these movies the way that he kind of lets people riff you know what i mean and in a different movie that works because you have comedians or sketch comedians who are used to riffing but this movie he doesn't have that so there's so many scenes that are just like that scene where he's just shooting Marissa Tomei talking to her sister who has two scenes in the movie and they just kind of mention her sister. I don't know who she is. It's all impro- it's clearly all improvised and it doesn't go anywhere. And like the same thing happens in a scene that's I think is the pivotal scene in the movie later when they're when they're at the bar and Steve Buscemi ends up telling a story. Bill Burr makes this joke about they're talking about how Scott's dad used to do cocaine. And Bill Burr makes this joke about, like, a Bolivian nickel or something. Remember the Bolivian nickel joke? And it's clearly a joke, but it takes, like, a beat for anyone at the table to laugh at it. And and I'm just like, why is this here? Like, why didn't they edit this stuff out? Like, these things aren't working. The way that... Oh, I like like that joke. I think the beat shows that the people around him... Well, that's what I'm saying. ...built to play off of it. I'm not saying that the joke isn't working. I'm saying that the method... The method in this film doesn't work. So it ends up being like an Irishman type film where the camera is just waiting around 
for somebody to do something and no one's saying cut and no one's no one's like trimming this down and no one's trying to find the movie inside of all this footage they're just like well here's scott being sad isn't that so sad to like that end of movie i mean that's that's what this movie is to me it was really weird well, thought, it's so baggy it interesting I find I find like that that riffing interesting. I, I didn't really consider that being a, a major conceit of, of its failing in in its you know in this film's kind of girth. Um, and I agree. I, I guess to Pete Davidson's credit, uh, the one the parts where riffing works are you know when he has those solo moments with Bill Burr. Like at least there's a, a quickened pace to it. They're playing well off each other. And surprisingly, some of Pete David, I mean, I shouldn't say surprisingly because I don't want to fall into the traps, but Pete Davidson's moments with, with Mata Apatow, like at least she's able to kind of keep up because she's, you know, from that family, I, I guess, or maybe she's actually developing talent. I really don't get why people are criticizing Mata Apatow in this film. She's perfectly serviceable. I thought she um, ate the scenes that she did with Pete Davidson up. I thought he was. In a good way. I think, yeah, I thought he was like, yeah, she was like no. dragging him through them. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, she's playing off of his kind of like real his jokes that even the jokes that kind of fall flat. She kind of like care like her response to it carries it to making it fun. Like the gift receipt comment, it, it comes off the way he says it when she presents him with the artwork. Yep. The way it comes off at first, it, when he says it, is like what a fucking like piece of. Sh- I want this guy to die like right now. <laughs> the way she carries it is to the way you want to feel, which is like, oh, this this guy's a schmuck. Um, but whatever like he's just naive and, and broken you know she's she's able to br- yeah you're right she's able to bring that up um for me in, in relation to kind of the fat of this film uh it is it is choices made in the screenplay and choices made in the editing room that that are really its downfall in terms of that i'm usually a person who finds the entire criticism of judd apatow's films being too long to be slightly overstated uh you know, it, the length is is evident in Funny People and This Is 40. Um, although I, I err on the side of saying This Is 40 is an all right film. I do think Funny People's far too long for its britches. Um, but there's maybe a lack of noticing the moments that, that are utterly pointless to the film's existence. Mm-hmm. Here, it is so painfully clear um, that either uh, choices in narrative contrivances... Um, cripple the film uh the entire subplot with the oxycotton pharmacy oh, come on uh, come on thing is, is is exists solely to remove his friends from the equation yeah there is a lot more nuanced and i don't know not not nuanced there's a lot quicker ways i'd be willing to forgive to get rid of those characters that doesn't involve a subplot that trails into nothingness um you know even so much as he does something with his friends that frustrate or anger his friends you know and that just gives you a scene uh his entire sub his entire not subplot his entire character being a bus boy uh that it's used for uh just two mo let's really only exist to two moments yeah show two moments uh the moment with kelsey and the date which i think is a fine moment um some of the moments between him and kelsey kind of work uh from a very base level base level yes 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 yes, yes. um and the moment with bill burr but then you have two scenes of him fighting. Yeah, what the hell tips. is that? The scene, the scene with the Staten Island schmuck couple who trying to get their seafood order. Rick right. Voss. You know, is that Rick Voss? Yeah. Um, the, those scenes in in a in a film that's you know an hour and forty minutes, an hour and fifty minutes can exist 
in a bubble by themselves and be fine as just like a comedic side. When your film is pushing 136 minutes and the first hour and 20 minutes are your character not developing at all, but kind of continuing at this low level baseline where yep. we don't like them. Yep. You do, you lose the earning of having that moment in the film. You have to cut that. Well, here's and I mean, here's what I would say. Also, I'm sorry, I'm just making notes so I don't forget to mention anything. Is that I think the the problem with those things is that this movie is called The King of Staten Island, and there's that one really stupid conversation about Staten Island when they're when him and all his friends are kind of like sitting in that at that basketball court in that abandoned orphanage uh, and that cop comes and that, or that security guard comes and he yells at them and they're like Staten Island is the best. I'm going to put Staten Island back on the map, blah, 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 blah. And then there's the couple, the rich Voss couple. And then the rest of the movie has nothing to do with Staten Island. It could be anywhere. It could be any borough of any New York, like it, it could be any suburb of any New York borough, literally anywhere. It, none of this stuff. Yeah, I, it's, it doesn't matter. Like it, it really doesn't matter. There are, I hate to break it to Staten people from Staten Island. There are douchebags in every borough of New York City. There are people with gambling problems or with day trading problems. That I mean, that was a plot point that like came and went like instantaneously. He has a gambling problem. It's day trading. Fine. Um, there are these people everywhere. There are kids whose dads who are firemen and died in fires all over the place. This stuff matters in relation to Pete Davidson's autobiography, which, again, is totally fine. But if you're going to make a movie about that, I mean, I would like you, and I should have given you homework, and I should have done this myself, but now I'm just thinking about it. I would like to think of a movie where, like, the place of the movie matters just as much as, like, the people in the movie. Or the people in the movie... (laughs) Uh, my 25 yeah Uh, my 25 well we can argue we can argue that too um (laughs) but it's i mean it exists in other places but at least it yeah my 25 i will say weaves it very heavily into its narrative but if i'm and tries tries to earn it kind of um i think it does try to earn it It tries and it tries to earn it honestly and i think i think big big lebowski big lebowski is good it's an la movie I, and I think, but I actually think your twenty-five point is accurate, and that yours tries to earn it honestly. Yours try this movie tries to graft it on to a very basic story, and I think the problem with this movie ultimately is you mentioned like a base level and like a a baseline. This movie is about something very specific. You know what I mean? It's about a kid who's dealing with loss and who's really struggling against the change that inevitably comes after you know, a long period of stasis and they've just grafted all this shit onto the back of it that has nothing to do with anything so that the redemption, when it finally kind of comes at the end, what I found so frustrating about those, those end scenes is that they still can't let any of this shit go. They can't stop like Judd Apatowing or Pete Davidson all over this movie. That guy was clearly bleeding to death why was that woman, that nurse, not treating him? Just because he said like he didn't get shot or stabbed, he's got blood all over him. That makes no sense. And because why is you know they need to show that Bill Burr's a firefighter and get things why? done. Why? But who cares? But to that end, to the Bill Burr thing, if if you want to show Scott grow as a person, why not have that back tattoo be something really fucking killer and emotional and great? Why is it just a back tattoo of a total fuck up? 
like Scott stays a fuck up for the whole movie. And, and I, I guess at the I end, he, he looks at the New York City skyline and everything's supposed to be good because he told, uh, you know, Belle Pauly that he loves her. But who gives a shit? I mean, I don't I don't he's not learning anything. He's still. And this is what what makes me so mad is this is one of those instances where Armand White is totally right, where like this is a kind of this is a kind of um, it almost reads like a a specific moment in. Uh, uh, our youth culture's history where the expectation that these kids or people that are Pete Davidson's age are the goal is not necessarily for them to stop sucking ass. The goal is for them to understand why they're sucking ass and then to do it for more honest reasons. You know what I mean? So now he's going to be an honest fuck up who acknowledges that like he sucks at life. I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? Isn't that where this movie kind of led us? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as an, an, you know, a, you know, indictment of of the of his of his age group. No, no, um, no, no, no. But like, it's but it's true. It's, a very it's true specific, for him. But it's true yeah. for this movie. Yeah. Um. To to a couple points you made. Uh. I I think I agree. I I fully agree with the Staten Island thing. It plays nothing of a role. Um. I would say the only thing that earnestly feels Staten Island is Kelsey's subplot of trying to do the civil service exam to get into the city. Yeah. Uh, yeah just yeah, because yeah. Stat- Staten Island carries that very like Italian working class ideology behind it. And that kind of dream of getting into public government is, you know, it, it's a pretty uh, inherent goal in kind of that Staten Island culture. Uh, so, so that, yeah, beyond that though, like it could be anywhere metropolis um, and yeah, to, to your later point, it is, it is a film that just, he just remains in stasis and, and, and he, he doesn't grow. Uh, it, it, I don't think it's trying, it's trying to say anything about, I don't think it's trying to say he's okay still to be the fuck up. Um, I, I think the major failing of that, like back tattoo reveal is, um, Maybe like some of the artwork could have been bad on it, but some of his like doing things that are directly opposed to what Bill Burr asked him not to do are still show like a maliciousness of his character. Yeah. Uh, and the camera doesn't like linger long enough. And it would have been nice if the major prominent tattoo, except for, you know, the one it being a tattoo of the same size as all the other tattoos is a tattoo of the four of them, mm-hmm. you know, Ray, Margie, um, Scott and and Claire. Yep. Like had that been the most prominent tattoo he'd been working on, in addition to some small tattoos that like weren't against Ray's wishes, but agree. We're we're testing. Yep. Uh that would have been a good character moment of, you know, like he's still a fuck up, but he's growing. Right. He's becoming something. I, I think the only moment you see any sort I really thought this was gonna go towards like a, a cliche thing of him finding out he wants to work with kids or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um because the only moments of growth you see are just the way he handles children. And, you know, that to me slightly works. Um, but it, it all like so many things that seem interesting in this film. Yep. Goes, goes absolutely nowhere. Well, wouldn't end. how it, it, it peters out. I mean, to that point, I mean, to that exact point, like what happens to the kids? Like the kids disappear in the middle of the, in like, in like the three fifths mark. And then they kind of come back at the end when they're, when they're, you know, supposed to be having, a good time and stuff like that. Like there's no, it's weird that it's weird that a movie that's um, 
comedy based and that features stand up comedians doesn't do more comedian things. Like there's no there's no callbacks in this movie. Why doesn't Ray and Scott and and Harold why don't they all go to a baseball game like at the end of the movie? You know what I mean? Like a pivotal scene in the movie, a movie that kind of suggest a scene that kind of suggests a scene at the beginning of the movie that kind of suggests what this movie could have been, where kind of Scott lays into the firefighters at the at the um, at the Staten Island scene. Yankees game. It's a good scene, and it's actually shot. It's actually shot pretty good. It's got, it, like it actually made me kind of feel like I was at a baseball game, which felt really shitty for like a second. Look, why not do a callback to that scene? You know what I mean? Why not like go back to some of these things and kind of and kind of hold these new experiences up as a mirror to the old experiences? You know what I mean? Maybe that's kind of hokey and maybe like filmmaking, but John Apatow is not rewriting the wheel here. You know what I mean? He can afford to have like a hokey film moment if it feels honest and actually brings some legitimate emotion into into the into the picture. Um, yeah, because first and foremost. Like Judd Apatow's trying to be an emotional director. So if you play to the cliches of the genre, who cares? Like it's fine if you do it successfully. And I think he has the, the ability to do it successfully if he really tries, because he does that with like 40-year-old virgin. Um, it's just now he's he just doesn't it just doesn't seem like he cares. Like it seems like his this his films now feel lazy. Like that there's a real Yeah. There's a real like single passover feel to him. Like it's it's a it's a I agree with you. Initial draft and then it's filmed and then he's done. Well, I think this is a we- a really 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 weird time to be watching this movie and to be thinking about this movie to be talking about this movie because we're getting into the situation where a lot of these direct release movies, you know, you had certain problems with The Five Bloods, but like The Five The Five Bloods is not like this movie. It's not um surely it's not um what's the other straight to thing we reviewed? That wasn't very good. Trolls World Tour. Trolls World Tour, sure. I forget what the other one was. On, onward? Are you talking about Onward? Onward, um, um, onward a little bit less because it's a Pixar movie, but it's also it's also. And there's Vast Vast of Night, but I disagree. I would disagree with you on Vast of Night. No, no, because Vast of Night, I don't think was getting a big theatrical release. An Amazon Prime movie. I don't remember exactly what what the movie was, and I could look it up, but I don't really care. Never, um, rarely, sometimes, always reliked. No, oh, gosh, that's good. That's good. Oh, me. but you know what it is? I never it's, it's the buzz on Greyhound. It's the uh, early reviews for this John Stewart movie. You know what I mean? This irresistible oh. Steve Carell movie, which is getting destroyed. Where the thinking has to be, I think, on a lot of these levels, that one of the reasons that they decided to kind of just put these movies out on demand is because I don't know who's going to see Last King or Last King see. There it is, Last King of Staten Island. There you go. Everyone would go see that. I don't know who's going to see King of Staten Island. <laughs> What if, what would you do if Forrest Whitaker's EDM Min showed up in the halfway through this film? It would be amazing. It would be. I, t- I said it in the beginning. If he if he came at some point and then hung Pete Davidson up with chains by his chest, his chest flesh. Oh, that would be that would be great. Um, that that movie. We've never talked about Last King of Scotland. That movie really ran the gamut between being pretty good and pretty pretty weird. Um, yes, yes, it does. Um, I don't know. This movie's not very good. Are is one of the reasons that some of these movies are getting released on demand instantaneously because the feedback from studios or whatever is like this movie if we held on to it would not make any money or is not good enough that it would survive um a kind of a, a full panel of bad theatrical reviews. You know what I mean? I actually think this movie plays better in my house than it would 
in a cinema, don't you? Could you imagine sitting in that in a cinema for two hours and seventeen minutes watching this movie? No, no. I mean, it would be you know, it'd be torture. You know, I think. No, I think the issue is Tom. What's the issue? The Kevin Corrigan problem. That's not a problem. That was only a positive. No, I, I think I think Kevin Corrigan. He used to be a he used to be a great positive. You know, you got seven psychopaths. You had like Pineapple Express, but then he's like starring in the chaperone and the dictator and winner's tale and he kind of takes away from knight of cups you know it's kevin corrigan kevin, can I, do I saw, anything you want i saw kevin i saw kevin corrigan pop up in this movie and i was like ah oh, kevin corrigan's in this and i like i don't dislike kevin corrigan like because he used to be in a bunch of stuff i liked but i i have have a pavlovian response <laughs> to kevin corrigan now where i'm just like this is going to be no good well I, I think i had the same experience with uh moises aris where i just kept wanting to this. I kept wanting this movie to descend into a Manos type situation, where he. Oh invi- my God! He was. He, he inv- was. He was from Manos. Yeah, That's yeah, where yeah. I remembered him from. But nice. when I, the first when I saw him, I was like, Oh my God! I just I, <laughs> I want him to kill a cow. I want him to invite all his murdering Latin American friends up and just take this whole town out. Um, yeah, I did not have a super good time. I, I'm. I don't no. know what you were thinking for next week. I don't think I'm going to spend twenty bucks to watch Irresistible. Um, no, no, I wasn't. That wasn't my idea. My okay. idea was Athlete A for next week. Athlete A. Netflix film. Okay, documentary. Cool. Good. On the gymnast uh, sex scandal. Um. Yeah. Good. So Let's... guys, get real. Get real excited for that one. You know, we did a couple weeks of of big releases. Um. um we're not doing Artemis Fowl because I just refused to watch it after nah, all the nah, reviews. Nah, 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 nah. Um. One last thing I'm going to say on this. Yep, go ahead. I will have a moment of pride when I was watching this movie and I looked at I looked at my roommate and I was like, the actress playing Kelsey, she's 100% British. Yeah, she's British. Yeah, but it's it's crazy. It was like the first time I've ever seen somebody, like it's so, I don't, because I don't necessarily think it's too, I mean, obviously her accent's too affected, but I don't know how I got, how I called that. I've, I've never seen her before in anything. But I was like, She's British. Yeah, I don't. I I also don't know how I uh I I looked it up when I was watching it, and I was like, oh, okay, that explains. Because you're like she's because you're like she's British, right? Well, she trips like a couple. Of, she something. Tri- yeah, she trips a couple of times where the the uh the um stereotypical she has a fine job. New York criticize- accent. I'm not criticizing her. No, I think she actually. Not- it's funny. She's her and Maude Apatow are the two people that I think are do a pretty good job with um. In Bill Burr to an extent, emotion. Burr, yeah. carrying emotion, and and I think she's got a tougher job because she's supposed to be, she's kind of supposed to be one of the losers. You know what I mean? She's supposed to be one of those Staten Island townies, although she does want to escape. Um, but where the rest of those guys kind of fall back on, um, you know, loser stereotypes, she continues to kind of rise above that. Um, yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like, there's so many more interesting tales in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> than, yeah, than Scott's tale, like. You know, oh. Ray and, and Margie. I don't know what you had to say about anything else about Marissa Tomei. I, well, I just think, you I said think, you had something else. I just think I kind of mentioned it about the, the, the sister part. I think Mar- Marissa Tomei is good, and I know she's getting a lot of praise, but I think it's Judd Apatow's fault when she's bad because she's just not good at riffing. So there's too it's many scenes. Her, yeah, it's not her DNA. So there's too many scenes that just kind of feel like they go on for like four or five beats too long because she can't find the way to transition into like whatever the next um, idea is supposed to be that Pete Davidson or Bill Burr or whoever's playing her sister can kind of land on and then take, and then take off. Which isn't, 
the like I wouldn't even say it's really the fault of her. It's the fault of the editing room again. I like, agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just you can slice that you can slice a couple of the frames out and you're fine. No, she's becoming a real she's becoming an emotional asset to films. Like if Marissa Tomei is in your movie and she's playing the right part, I think she carries um there's like a, a, a life weight to her which works in almost every situation. I mean, like the wrestler, this, but I even even think in the new Spider-Man movies. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, yeah. Well, I mean, she was good before the Devil Knows You're Dead, but it's a different kind of movie. I just, I love, I love Before the Um, Devil Knows You're Dead. I think she carries a really interesting weight and she occupies a really interesting place in the culture now. One where I think, where people used to complain about her having an Oscar for My Cousin Vinny, I don't think people mind that so much anymore. I mean, Which we've talked about still to us, still to us doesn't make sense that people complain about it because it's a good performance. Well, and she's redeemed herself a couple of times since then. So she doesn't have to redeem herself, though. We talked about this. It's a good performance in My Cousin Vinny. No, no, it's a great performance. But we when yeah. it's it's like the one time a comedic, like a, a largely comedic performance, the Oscars were just like, yeah, you can have this. Um, I don't know. Where's yeah. Tomei? Pretty good. Um, overall, I would I would say it's it's worth a watch once this becomes on streaming potentially, or when it's but it's you, it is, yeah. Not do not fucking spend twenty dollars on this though. No, 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 no. It's uh, uh, there was instant buyer's remorse. Like twenty minutes into this movie, I was like, oh jeez. When they started yelling at that kid about taking his shoes because he didn't have enough money for six, uh, whatever he wanted to buy, so I was like, yeah, I'm out. The six oxycons. These guys or, think no, they're uh, Xanax, Xanax, Xanax. Xanax. These guys think they're very cool, and they aren't cool. And this movie thinks that I should think that they're pretty cool. So, um, it's it's yeah. Last of Us two all over again, Tom. Last of Us two all over again. <laughs> some people, some people understand that that reference. Do you like and that most, game? Have you been playing it? Uh, uh, just I'll do this as a quick moment. Um, yeah, no, I I don't. I I didn't like the first one. But I have this weird compulsion where I feel the necessity to consume um, the next in, in like the critically acclaimed series. Uh-huh. Um, technically, it's a solid game. It's a it's a very solid game. Uh-huh. Um, it has major failings from a story standpoint in the fact that you are introduced to a character who is instantly made into a character who you hate um, because she does something i'm not going to spoil the game yeah, yeah um and then the one thing i'll spoil is later on you play as that character for 10 hours you switch to her narrative huh. even though you've been introduced to her as has has an antagonist um and the film tries to earn i mean the, the film the game tries to earn a redemptive art for her but you have as a gamer and as a consumer a preconceived notion of her um ending up finishing on this very ham-fisted note about uh, a morality story about revenge they ended up going yeah neil Druckmann, i saw virgin spring you don't know what the fuck you're doing <laughs> everyone understands what you're doing and it just it these these major moral moments like revenge and murder don't work at all in games in the same way that they do in film and this is going to be the failing in storytelling in film versus gaming and that that a uh, careful narrator and director of a game's gonna have to learn. I, I reference back, and I've talked to you with this with Spec Ops: The Line. There's a moment uh-huh. where you're forced to phosphorus bomb what ends up being a bunch of innocent people. But the degree to which you deliver the phosphorus bombing and and, and the feelings in which you have with it mm-hmm. um, are initially ambiguous. Mm. 
and it's kind of presented to you in a way where you as a player are going to feel good about it. And then afterwards, um, you realize what you've done. And you realize that the degree to which you've, you've killed these people, you know, is kind of, it was kind of by your own volition. Mm-hmm. Um, similar games have, have narrative choices where it's like choose your own adventure. The problem with Last of Us 2 and a lot of these very narrow focused narratives that are trying to tell their own story um, is the fact that you are forced to make this choice and then it teaches you that lesson. You know, in this game, you kill a bunch of, you kill pregnant women um, in this game, but you're forced to do it. You know, it's just a thing that is done for you. And it says like, don't you feel bad? And you end up being going, no, I'm, I'm angry and frustrated because I, as a player, because that's what a game is, you're not a viewer, you're an active participant in it, would not make that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I've, I've been reading and that's a lot. Why, and that's why Rockstar is better than Naughty Dog, because at least Rockstar gave you the choice in things. And I've Fuck been, you, Naughty Dog. Yeah, I've been reading, Go back to Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> back to Crash Bandicoot. Um, I've been reading a bunch of reviews of it, just because I've, it's interesting. It was like a really big deal. It seemed like to be like the lead review in a lot of different things. And I've read a couple of people that have made that point, um, where like it's a, it's a very beautiful game to behold, but it makes you feel like total shit, and they don't want to play a video game for as many hours as this takes to accomplish and feel like total complete garbage more yeah, and I, I would be, like i said i would be fine feeling like, like moral complete garbage in a game if i was given the choice to do so mm-hmm. when i'm forced to do so because that's the only way the game continues yeah that's weird that's nothing yeah that's weird that's weird all right that was a good that was a good little micro review yeah i like that We'll, we'll we'll tag that in our in our tags and, and maybe a bunch oh, of people will find we're, it. We're gonna throw a last. We're gonna throw a video game review into a into a. Oh okay, yeah, whatever. I've got a note here. I'm gonna I'm gonna timestamp it. It'll be good. Uh, to any person who jumps into this as a video game person, I don't care about the technical qualities of a game. All that matters, unless if if you're a narrative driven game, I'm not gonna give a shit about. Unless you're like technically a disaster, it doesn't matter how technically great you are. Your narrative is going to be the first thing that matters to mm-hmm. me above any of that. Mm-hmm. So save save your bullshit. I, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's technically it's technically the the technical direction team on this did a fucking amazing job. The creative direction team on this did not. Yeah. All right. We will be right back with my number twenty five. <laughs> Welcome back. My number 25 um, is the 1999 directorial debut of Sofia Coppola, uh, The Virgin Suicides. So much has been said about the girls over the years. Those girls have a bright future ahead of them. But we have never found an answer. Her act was a cry for help. I heard it was an accident. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. We got a full tank of gas. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. That time. We've been waiting for you guys. You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Obviously, Doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. Four sisters put their own lives in jeopardy. They'll all be gone by next year. 
sure about the sequence of events. We argue about it still. Your lack of introduction still confuses me. I don't know. It's, it's not good at it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the Virgin Suicide is the story of the Lisbon sisters and their uh, the summer in which or the 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 season or the year I suppose it depends on how you look at it in which the the five Lisbon sisters um, Cecilia Bonnie Mary Teresa and Lux all commit suicide in one form or another um, it's also about the the boys who live in the neighborhood uh, who uh, kind of are obsessed with the, the Lisbon sisters. It is also about uh, the suburbs um, in, uh, in some of the ways that uh, Year 25 is and some of the exact ways that Year 25 is. Um, it's about class. It's about um, sexuality. It's about religion in a lot of ways it's about dreams dying it's about disappointment it is about the way that how you perceive your life as going is not always how it goes and what the ramifications of that experience is uh i first was introduced to the virgin suicides from um do you remember the the sofia coppola short film lick the star I never saw that. I actually have never heard of that. Oh, okay. So in 1998, she released this short film called Lick the Star. It was shot all in black and white. It looks a lot like The Virgin Suicides. Um, it, or actually, I should go back. It doesn't look like The Virgin Suicides as much as it feels like The Virgin Suicides. It all kind of feels like a dream. It's all kind of uh, acted in, in some hushed tones. It's a good use of an interesting use of music. I think Sofia Coppola uses music really interestingly where it doesn't necessarily describe the exact emotion that you're supposed to be feeling. And I'm talking about score um, here. It, it, it kind of enters you into a dream state, which I think we're also going to talk about with your 25. Um, it's centers around these four girls who are in this, uh, this school clique who uh, have this really elaborate plan to, to poison boys at their school. Uh, this movie played on IFC in the late nineties, I feel like a hundred times a day. Um, so I saw it a million times, uh, cause I watched a lot of IFC then. Um, IFC used to be, that's the problem. I did not get IFC out in the battle. Ah, oh, that's a bummer. IFC was kind of, IFC was kind of the best. It's weird because like, you never heard of some of those movies. They didn't necessarily show like classic film or, or whatever, but they did show just like really weird stuff all the time. Uh, which I suppose is even better than even better than that. So when I saw that Sofia Coppola, the girl, the woman that directed, um, like the star, was going to make a movie based off of Jeff uh, Jeffrey Eugenides' book, The Virgin Suicides, um, I immediately scooped up the book and I read it. Um, and then this was in my big when I like kind of just turned into like a legitimate reader. So it's uh, those kind of we, we've talked about these before. Those initial like legitimate reader books are always are like really pivotal, like the Chuck Palahniuk books, the sound and the fury white noise. Um, and the Virgin suicides was one of those, was one of those books as well. Um, I think this is his first book too. This right? is his first book. Yep. Um, and by that, by I said, I think, I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page where it says it. I'm not I don't play know. It I played off. Like I actually knew that. <laughs> 
Um, Tom, did you know that this is his first book? <laughs> Trivia. Um, went to see it in theaters uh, and was um, blown away is the wrong word. And I think this is kind of, I don't know if, how you feel about your 25. And I'm not sure how you feel about like some of your movies. Are you? No, no, no. But like <laughs> when you first saw it, being blown away is like uh, connotates like has a specific connotation to it. You know what I mean? It's that kind of like what the hell just happened thing. This was for an hour and a half. I felt like I entered like a completely different universe, which was somehow my own universe, which spoke directly to like things I was feeling and and thinking about, and maybe even like images I was seeing. You know what I mean? Or 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 spoke directly to like what I assumed my relationship to like, or what I was hoping my relationship to, to records and to stuff, um, but also to girls was and would be. And I actually think that's, it's pretty accurate. And if I, if and I, it's funny cause I just wrote about this in an essay that I did for, for my MFA. Um, like there's some of these things that uh, like these early movies that I saw, these early defining movies, I think became sort of like templates for personality thing. And if personality traits, and if they're not templates, then they spoke directly to some kind of subconscious knowledge that I had about myself that I was able to articulate through seeing some of these movies. Um, and the Virgin suicides was absolutely uh, 100% that. And how do we get to that point? I suppose the movie has really nothing to do with me. I think one of the beauties of this movie versus uh, the book is that where the book is about the boys, um, the movie is about the girls. And because the boys are telling you everything in, in the story, um, every flashback to what they assume to be happening in the house is framed exactly as, as that. They don't really know. They can assume based on the evidence that they've collected. These guys have, through estate sales, through going through their garbage, through people that have ended up in these girls, this girl's fairly locked down house, have kind of been able to paint this fairly elaborate and detailed picture of what these girls' um, stifled life was like. Um, and, and maybe why it was so stifled and why they ended up doing the things that they were doing. Um, so I maybe didn't like speak directly to those, to those things from a book to the movie. Um, oh, so just to finish the point, the movie is very much about the girls because you get to see those things in real life. You get to see the girls reactions to everything. You get to see their faces. You get to see the inside of their, actively see the inside of their house. It's not just imaginings anymore. And at no point does the movie really perceive these things as imaginings i'm actually be interested if you disagree with that um especially the way the, that the ending is framed um but it doesn't appear so anyway the really interesting thing about this movie is that it's it's very rooted in a in a in a time and place and that's not necessarily a time and place that i have any experience with this is a very wealthy suburb of detroit i think the interesting thing about the movie is that where the book really heavily details some of the goings some of the urban unrest in downtown detroit at that exact moment that the the, the story is taking place um None of that stuff is really present here except for the nascent sound of uh, police sirens in the background occasionally. You know what I mean? You get a little bit of the funeral um, or the grave digger strike. You get a little bit of that stuff, but it's really kind of pushed to the side because they've pushed the girls right to the center. Um, I find this movie, and it's really interesting that Sofia Coppola would make a movie later called The Beguiled. Um, I find this movie like oddly beguiling. Like it's oddly happy 
at a lot of moments. You know what I mean? The soundtrack kind of skips along at various times. There's a lot of really heady joy experienced in this movie. Like the the um, the crazy on you scene where where you know uh, Josh Hartnett's Trip Fontaine spends that spends the the night watching watching the tube uh, with the Lisbons because he wants to ask uh, Lux, played by Kirsten Dunst, out on a date. And he spends like the most chaste evening ever just drinking soda and watching nature documentaries while Lux knits. And then he goes out to his car and and uh, a moment later, Lux is just on top of him and, and, and they're making out and her gun gum ends up in his mouth. And you get that amazing, like crazy on you in there. There's also the the um, come sail away, the stick song, which is just a terrible song, but at that at the uh, the homecoming How dance, fucking dare you! <laughs> this movie is full of a lot of those weird anachronisms. We're like, that's really good. Ah, can't believe I said that. Um, oh no, I actually, I legit. I'm not saying the joke. I legitimately like that. Like, okay. Everything um, sticks. But I felt that way about James Woods. Is that like now when you think about modern day James Woods, you're just like, oh, James Woods. But then when you're watching, there's like, it's pretty good. He does a pretty good job. Does a pretty good job. Um. Yeah, so you have that come sail away at that homecoming dance where like the girls are just ha- you don't even know which girl is which anymore. They've become like just one girl, and they're all wrapped up in themselves. And and you have this horrible crashing sadness that comes after that. The emotions. I I think this movie better than I think any other movie articulates the the. Maybe not the exact experience of being a teenager, but for me, articulates the emotions of being a teenager. The 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 highs are so high, the lows are so low, and in between, nothing else really seems to kind of make a consistent amount of sense. You know what I mean? Like we're supposed we're perceiving from the very beginning of this movie that there is a sadness here, yet this movie keeps depositing. Uh, little moments of, of silliness and, 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 um, you know, outright comedy and, and coolness and like sexiness. And and it's all just wrapped up into this really kind of festering package that ends, I think a little disappointingly. Um, I think the suicides happen too quickly in the, in the, in the movie more so than in the book. Um, but I think you get that extended kind of Gatsby-ish scene at the end with the uh, the asphyxiation party, with the you know the 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 coming out party um, for you know whatever whatever girl is 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 coming out or ever maybe everyone is maybe I don't understand coming out parties. I've never been to a coming out party or like a I don't know what the, I don't even really know what that means. Um, but that's extended and you get that kind of, you know, you get that end scene where then those four guys are just kind of looking at the house and it's it's melancholic and it's also kind of, I think from the movie perspective, there's a lot of sadness in the book about the fact that they may, they're maybe never going to understand this as well as they're supposed to. I think the interesting thing about the movie is that, and which speaks directly to legitimate teenage feelings that you're probably never gonna understand this as well as you're supposed to you're probably never gonna understand this as well as you had always hoped that you would and you're always going to be left with this weird feeling of like what the hell was that about but really that's just kind of what makes that's what makes it a story it doesn't have that nice rounded uh 
that nice rounded ending. And I think the weird satisfaction at the end with the boys is actually more indicative of, of like real teenage feelings. I don't have a lot of movies on my list that specifically reference what I think my life as a teenager was like, or what my experience as a teenager was like. And I think the reason is because I think this movie stands in for all of those stands in for all of those movies. Um, Mario. Interesting. You say that because you know i've i've had the reason i watched this movie initially and i watched this in 2006 or 7 2006 or 7 i'd heard a lot of people in high school um who absolutely adored this film and said like it spoke to them um, and the reason I watched it is, is my college girlfriend, like fucking adored this movie. And, you know, I was the idiot type who would just like anything she liked, I would just also have to consume it. I read all seven Harry Potter books because she was obsessed with Harry Potter. <laughs> um, and I watched it in college and I felt a certain way. And then I watched it again over a bowl of inebriated ramen which was pretty excellent um was it from a ramen made... place or was did you oh, I was gonna say you made it yourself yeah it's called casa de ponzio <laughs> made some pulled pulled chicken that had some like ginger and thyme in it and mm. it's pretty great um threw some egg and peas in there uh and i felt the same exact way and it's it, it is maybe an issue with, with my experiences but i feel so emotionally distant from this film mm -hmm. because it in, in no way kind of frames my high school experience frames uh, the way I felt as a teenager as a teenager I felt pretty pretty at a normal level like my emotional highs were just like I like this girl she didn't like me and my emotional lows were just like oh we didn't do our backyard wrestling show this week I want to do it next week and mm. it sucks I can't do it so like I like I think I've talked about this I lived like a really sheltered high school life um and so like for me it was just it was kind of like it's it's a solid piece of filmmaking um but I end up having like intellectual qualms with it that that more relate to the novel, I would say I haven't I haven't read it. Mm -hmm. um, every time I try to get into Jeffrey Jindy's, I just want to strangle myself. Um, Why? What? It's just my my issue with him, and I guess I guess a primary issue, and I mentioned to you with this in, in Virgin Suicides, and you said it's it's an issue with the novel is you know we focus on Lux, but it, it's more, and I never actually even tried to read Virgin Suicides, but it's it's something that I saw in Middlesex and. and um, <clears throat> Marriage plot. When I tried to read Middlesex and Marriage Plot, is that he he can only come at things from like one one frame of reference, and it doesn't feel like he can flesh out anybody else. Like he he kind of has a in to what he's writing, hmm. and and nothing else kind of develops with that sort of intensity. And and my problem with Virgin Suicides is like it never feels like these girls are people ever it always feels like their ideas 
for me the men around them because the, the men are the frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And Sofia Coppola does like a really eloquent job trying to give them something to do, but she's also very dedicated to accurately presenting the source material, I guess. I mean, I don't know, I haven't read it, that it ends up feeling as though like, I don't care in the fucking least about what these teenage boys have to think about what these girls are going through. I more care about what these girls are going through. And I'm not gonna criticize the film, and it's not a criticism of the film, but like I said, like, I wish it had done this because that's not a fair criticism. My problem is that I guess our frame of reference is so badly fleshed out because I, mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a Sofia Coppola like, like debut director problem where the boys that are narrating this, you know, don't feel, or, you know, Devonta Risi doesn't feel like he ma he doesn't matter at all. He, he's, he's nothing. He's doing, it's doing nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not growing in any way. Um, and and the, the one thing that feels like there's some depth and, 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 and real sort of um, character arc in, in the sisters is it's just always out of reach. It's just always behind the veil. It feels, like I said, it does feel truthful. And, and I do like the fact that like when we're in her house, it does feel honest. It doesn't feel like it's, it's all imagined. It does feel real, but it's just like, there's a better film for me with what she's doing um, that eschews the, the source material and just dives into this. Well, and because there's a lot of heart there and there's a lot of not anything in in your face. It's weird because I I don't disagree with the idea of like the narrative. I feel like even though I think it's very true to the to the novel, and I understand maybe I suppose because of having read the novel a bunch of times, the nature of what he's what Sophie Sophia Coppola is doing with Lux versus what Jeffrey Eugenides is doing with Lux, um, and I think Lux is really the central figure in in this book because she's the most she's the most human she's the most um she like cecilia the you know the the youngest daughter the first daughter that kills herself um we only get to experience her really experiencing sadness where lux runs the gamut from from um happiness to sadness and, and it's really crushing i think the the beauty of this movie for me lies in its aesthetics and not in so much in like its narrative choices I actually think a lot of the emotion of this movie, the emotional weight of this movie is carried by the haziness of that Sofia Coppola has um has constructed here, the tone with which she is like chosen to tell this movie because the book is much more serious. But I think she was smart in removing some of the the um the earnestness from the novel and which which I think she's done in by taking out um, some of the heavy-handedness of of the of the narration. Giovanni Rubisi does a good job, but there's could have been twice as much or three times as much narration as she left in there. Um, and I, so I think she kind of took out the right amount to kind of make it still more like it's a more universal story aesthetically than I think the the than the book is pushing which is about um, it's kind of like a Stephen Milhauser ripoff um, in a lot of ways, which is probably one of the reasons why I like it so much. Um, 
and make it about these make it about nostalgia and make it about these boys searching through their existence to find to find some kind of a meaning where this is because even though the nostalgia is there and I, I've never really kind of um, grappled with how I felt about like the interviewing trip as an as an older man or like the interview things you know what I mean because it's the only time that that really happens um where it's like the it's it's the future you know what I mean it's like the one future moment that we get um even though you get a Kathleen Turner you get a miss Mrs. Lisbon talking about it but you don't get to see her um all of the all of the aesthetic choices I think negate whatever kind of narrative flaws this movie ha- it has and ultimately I, I don't i feel like sofia coppola is more of an a, a stylist than she is um like an expert with narrative and i think that's probably true of uh lost in translation and somewhere and even the beguiled which i actually kind of liked a lot um but i think one of lost in translation's problem which is a movie i've mentioned on this podcast um a lot of times that i dislike um, and I was very excited for it. You know, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Coppola, like, those are all things that, that are, are, are a go for me. Um, it was literally, there was no emotion attached to the aesthetics. It was just aesthetics for the stake of, of aesthetics. You know what I mean? It wasn't, she was trying to craft an image more so than she was trying to attach any emotion to it. The narrative I'm I'm kind of okay with here or there because this, this for me is such an emotional movie. Um you know, I can kind of take it or, or take it or leave it. But if you don't have any emotions to attach to it, as I think we'll talk about a little from my perspective anyway, and you're 25, there's not a lot I can do with it. I I need to feel the emotion. I gotta feel it. And if I and and in some of her later work, I didn't really feel that so much. But this is all emotion. It's just this one. It's like it's like a a, a beating heart. This movie and it kind of. And it's and it's it's fitting that there's so much bloodletting in this movie. There's so much death because that's I and mean, it really just can't it just can't beat anymore. Um, there's more death in your 25 than my 25. Yeah, there is. Uh, no, I I agree. Actually, you know, thinking about it, just, just the, the filter that's over that that that, that dreamlike filter um, almost has at times like a a quality to that's akin to you know the dream states uh daytimes in west craven's nightmare on elm street almost how 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 muzzled they are um i agree aesthetically this movie flies on like all colors um Mm. you know it's aesthetically a goddamn success in every ways and it's it's a it's it's it sucks that i think sofia coppola has been hamstrung by her need to put her narrative first because I think she's much more of a visual director, mm. uh, much more of a visual director in the sense of telling what she wants, conveying what she wants you to feel through the visual instead of conveying what she wants you to feel through her narrative. Well, I've all... I think it would be much better, much better if she went with like a Luca way, you know? Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. If she, I... went, if she went with like, I no, like I'm sorry. the Suspiria or. Call me by your name, way. Well, that would be great. Doing. We need more Suspirias. I was looking at my 2018 list, and I was like, "Oh man, I wish I could watch Suspiria like every day." Um, well, no, that's what I mean. Like he, 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 he's willing to convey all that emotion, or just like same 
thing with, um, I can't remember his name, but the director of Spear the Beehive, like allowing yourself to Victor convey, Arise, yeah. Victor Arise, convey all of that emotional wallop in the visuals and, and in, you know, your technical craft. Like if she did that, I think, I think she would still be a, a much more accomplished filmmaker well, I think, than she's kind of been considered lately. I think the problem with like something like Maria Antoinette is that anybody talks and that she decided that she was going to have any story at all because the, Maria Antoinette is so successful aesthetically at conveying the exact message that she's trying to convey. You know what I mean? The spirit of what she's trying to say about, about that woman and at that time. But then she keeps... But, it's a movie. So there has, and it's a commercial movie. It's a, it's a studio film. I think it was a studio film anyway. So it has to have a narrative. It has to have a story to go along with it. And it, unfortunately that story and the, the conveying of that story through, through dialogue and, and, and all this other stuff kind of gets in the way of, of the feeling, you know what I mean? Cause it feels so good, but then you're just like, all right, don't do any of this other stuff. Stop doing this stuff. Just, just let me feel <laughs> things. I've always actually said that Marie Antoinette and, and I've always had this, this imagination of that film being, cause like I went to go see that in excitement um, just because I felt like it was going to knock it out. Of the oh, park. it seemed like it was. And yeah. Then, and I always said to myself, a better movie for Marie Antoinette is the movie you see with no dialogue, but like William Dafoe narrating over it, what's going on with the, like, just narrating a history lesson mm-hmm. of the currently expanding French Revolution. Mm. Like, has she's when she's doing the things, like it's like Wild Marie dance, like like doing a Vox Lux thing, like yeah, Wild yeah. Marie dance. You know, <laughs> Robespierre perfected like uh, authorized the final design of the guillotine. You know, like just a, a, it always felt like there, there was like this necessity for a juxtaposition in that film, and because you're right, like aesthetically. Like that film fucking works on all levels, but then that narrative is is about downer. She's she's the type of director, and I don't know. She 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 did oh she did write this. Um, she's wrote mostly everything she's done, right? Yeah. I I, th- I think she's that that type of filmmaker who just like just needs to not write her movies. She, I well, think she'd be better if she if she or co-wrote them. And we've encountered you know, like like I think. She, She's a better director than writer. Yeah, and we've encountered this a couple of times in in uh, some of our movies where, or some of the um, movies we talked about where the director also writes the movie, and it seems like they're they're too close to the material to really make any uh, like critical sense of it, and so they're just kind of they understand what they want to see, and they don't always kind of get to the screen exactly what they're what they're thinking. So, um, but I think Virgin Suicides, if that's the case, I didn't notice it. Um, it's kind of the experience of watching the movie, the emotions of watching the movie, um, the look of the movie are just kind of burned into my burned into my consciousness forever. And I think one of the things I've been struggling to do as like a writer is to not kind of fall back on some of like the tropes of not just the books that I love, but the the movies that I love, the images that I love. And I feel like I always am writing around images from like the virgin suicides they're just it's just kind of that much that profound a movie for me um i mean i don't really have anything else to say you got anything else to add i do i do do it Mario. i, I have an interesting little aside and it's going to lead into a conversation we've had before long ago on this podcast um so coming up in five weeks we're going to talk about a movie on 
in your list. Ten weeks after later, or ten weeks from now, five weeks from now, we're going to talk about a movie on your list. Five weeks after that, we're going to talk about that same movie. Um, that film has a very... Um, he's no longer divisive. He's, he's a, a, a very bad force in film. Um, <laughs> Watching this film... And I I couldn't help this time being distracted and not being able to strip away my personal feelings for James Woods. Yep. From what's a really solid performance. Yeah. Is this like an inherent issue we think we're going to have going ahead? Like, because we get like closer to films that we're like, I don't know how often we're going to have this problem. Um, but films where we're going to get close, like feel really close to like straw dogs a couple weeks ago, but like, I don't know, rewatching this, like, like how did him, how did he make you feel like rewatching him? Um, it's interesting. I go through this. I have this conversation with myself and me and my wife have this conversation between us a lot because we watch, you know how you, you just have your fallback show or movie, you know what I mean? When you're just tired, you but you don't want to go to bed and you're too tired to read and you just want to put something on to kind of like loosen the nerves in your in your face, you know what I mean? And so for us, that has always been Frasier, you know what I mean? And there is a very strong parallel between James Woods, the man, and Kelsey Grammer, the man, um politically oh it's Kelsey Grant is he very conservative I yeah I, super he, he's maybe a little is he maybe, I guess he's a little more quiet about it because I hadn't heard too much about that no he's I, well maybe he is um and I think it's hard for him because he's aligned so closely with this show where he plays a super liberal um David Hyde Pierce is 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 gay um there's a lot of gay people on this show there's a lot of um parts of um and i'm not saying that he's against that stuff but he's he's very 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 conservative and he sucks about it um james woods is also very 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 conservative and he also um sucks about it um i when i first saw him i was just like Ugh, james woods but i think the performance is so good that by the end of the movie i was kind of able to forget about it and just kind of go back to how i felt about it in 1999 when i saw it the movie we're the other 1999 movie that we're going to talk about it was 1999 right or 2000 1999 um james woods just sucks that other guy's a predator well i I mean james woods james woods shares a mindset i mean yes i understand there's different levels but james woods subscribes to a mindset that is more destructive to me than than what that other fellow did i mean yeah. the other fellow directly did it james woods just promotes things that have been far more destructive and using a platform it's it's like the elizabeth moss problem like elizabeth moss we love her as an actress but she's still a very vehement scientologist well she's you know? only a vehement scientologist um, because i could se- i could separate i could separate that that yeah I mean, I guess she doesn't really. She's not outspoken about it, perhaps. No, she's um, only vehement about it when people didn't. ask her about it, and then she's just kind of like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'll talk about it because you asked me." But I don't. She doesn't necessarily want to talk about it. I think the problem with the guy that we're referencing is 
Um, I suppose what I said is is the problem. It's I don't know. It's like the weird intellectualism versus like actualism. You know what I mean? Like, yes, he supports mm. it, but I don't know if we have. And I could do some research on this, and we can get back to you next week, folks, and and talk about um, how wrong we were. I don't know if he's acted on it in the way that like the other guy kind of manipulated a whole bunch of people and uh, used his stature and his position, um, you know, within a, within a company to essentially uh, groom and harvest like victims for his like, you know, sexual proclivities. Um, Oh no, no, for sure. Um, It's just, but I know, no, you're not, you're not I'm, not, I'm not trying to like equate them. I'm not trying to equate them. I'm just saying like I could I I, I could see myself feeling a level of disgust for James Woods and having my level of disgust for the other person maybe be only maybe maybe be significantly higher because I haven't rewatched that movie uh, since you know and I think that all those allegations came out. But I think the problem is it's one of and, those. No, go ahead. And seven, like obviously, I, th- I think we're making it clear what movie we're talking about. Um, seven <laughs> has has made it um, at least paints them as a villain, so you don't have to do too much reconfiguration of your feelings for him. And he's not necessarily like a main character; he's not in it all that much. I think the problem with that with um, the movie we're talking about for me is kind of, um, and I was reminded of this when this Chris uh, Delia thing came to light, where you know, mm-hmm. that scumbag comedian who groomed all those women and like tried to sleep yeah, with yeah, yeah. girls and all that stuff is that he was playing on, he was playing parts in role in, in, in TV shows where he was playing like a guy who stalked and victimized underaged women and Kevin Spacey, or so there he gets to Kevin Spacey, um, clearly, uh, victimized underage. He had underage victims, you know, uh, he's, going after underage women in the movie we're talking about. Uh, that seems weird. And yeah. that seems very problematic. And uh, I'm not saying who should have known what in, in 1998 or whenever they decided to cast this movie. I don't know what was a the problem then. What became a problem? I have no idea. Um, it just, it's hard to watch. It's much too close to the reality to be comfortable. I think the, the difference here is that James Woods is not playing. Um, he's not playing one of that guy in this movie. So it's easy to separate, especially when he loses it at the end of the movie. He's kind of, you don't see him yeah. as, as that kind of guy. So um, I don't know. And it's aided by the fact that Scott Glenn's in it. <laughs> and doing, Always good to have a Scott Glenn. Doing that great occasional Irish accent. Yeah. Um, the, the occasional brogue. He's from that part of Ireland where they don't always have it, but sometimes they have it. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm familiar with that part. Yeah, it's a good part. Um, all right. We will be right back. Drum roll with Mario's 25. Tom, this has been half a decade coming. Hasn't it? It feels so weird. Half a decade. Yeah. It does feel weird. I kind of, I kind of just want to end the, I kind of just want to list the movie and then be like, if you want to talk about that movie, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. And we'll, uh, we'll come back it next just feels week like, to talk about it. Yeah, and then we'll just keep pushing it off forever yeah. and ever. 
I, so this movie is so entwined with me now. And it was entwined with me in every moment. Um, from its the first time I heard about it to when I saw it in the theaters to drunken pre-Oscar nights to <laughs> watching it several times this week. Um, and I've always been so hesitant about you watching it. And I don't know why, because maybe, maybe because it was so closely entwined mm, with who I am. Yep. And I th- I've always thought that this is the film where from a chemical level, you and I are going to be so divergent. And I never knew how I was going to be able to craft my thoughts on it. So I guess I'll start crafting my thoughts with with my own opinions on it. That's the best way of doing it. That's what we've been doing for 75 weeks. On the pivotal film list, I count 15 horror movies mm. on my list, Tom. Three of these films are to follow. I still have three horror films left to talk about. The film that's here at 25 is one where I saw the trailer and I instantaneously knew that it checked off every mark I thought I'd want in a horror film and would want in this type of movie. But I did so with utter fascination and excitement, but also with incredible trepidation that it was just another resoundingly solid trailer that prefaces a a really solid horror film. Um, The same thing happened a few years earlier with uh, Your Next by Adam Wingard, um, a movie that, you know, barely misses the list. Uh, We talked about that in episode zero, I believe. Yeah, we talked about Your Next in episode zero. Um, I think we did, yeah. You know, but it still slightly misses the mark. So in early 2015, after looking forward to this film for six months and waiting for its pushback distribution, I got the chance to see this with possibly the worst possible person I could see it with, my uh, former roommate, uh, Reno, who we're talking about, Tom. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, it wasn't like a date. It for sure wasn't a date. We were just... We were friends at this time, but she was very excited for it. I was very excited for it. And it was actually it was actually a good time. Oh, those are weird uh, but times. It, it is it is it is definitely a, an interesting thing to connect to this film. Um, but as I watched it, it hit every mark I had expected for. It actually in many ways exceeded it. Did you and see it in theaters at, or did you see it at your house? I saw this I saw this on Thursday. Oh, okay. The day before it was going to come out. Gotcha. Um, and for, when I stepped out of the theater, I couldn't stop talking about it to my former roommate. And then whoever would listen, often to you, <laughs> many times to you, I would just talk incessantly about this film. And often for the reasons that I kind of I picked up on things that after years of this film being out kind of became the the prevalent opinion and and analysis of what this film's doing Uh um you know i I always i always consider this film to be about 
pushing off the inevitability of death. And, and to me, it just felt so utterly apparent that that's what it was. Um, but every single review I read about it was just like, oh, this talks about the dangers of sexually transmitted disease. Every single review I read at that time just talked about that. Just was so infatuated with that. Um, and it was, it was the, this film is the genesis for me going like, you know what? Maybe I have something to offer to discussing film. This was the first movie where I was like, I feel as though I watched this and I got it. Like it clicked on so many levels and I can articulate why I feel this way and I can defend it. I can back it up with examples from other films. I can back it up with some of examples from, from literature or from um, just experiences and, and from devices that are chosen um, on both an aesthetic level, but also a, a narrative level. And it was, the, it was a, this, this is the thing that made me kind of start thinking about like, it would be fun to like do a podcast. Mm. Um, but more so than any of that, of all the 15 horror films that are on my list, and I've seen many before, uh, more times than I've seen this. I've seen this one too many times to count now. Um, I would assume in the past five years, this and Portrait of a Lady on Fire are the two movies I've seen the most. Um, Which is ironic because Portrait of a Lady on Fire came out four months ago. Well, yeah, but I don't. <laughs> I don't typically see. I don't typically see movies more than ten times. I think I've only seen three movies more than ten times mm-hmm. in the past five years. Um, but horror defines me. It's it's like I said, fifteen films. But this is beyond of a shadow of a doubt, my favorite horror film ever made. Hmm. And it is the, I'm going to call it the 2015 David Robert Mitchell film, It Follows. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. Okay. You awake? What are you You're not gonna believe me, and I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's gonna follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. I don't know what the trailer sounds like. So now, let me ask you a question before you before you continue. Is You have two more horror films on your list, you said, right? Three. Three, Three. more after this one? Yeah. But this one's your favorite. Those are more pivotal, yes. but this one's your favorite. Yeah. So silence is pivotal because silence gets me into film. Mm-hmm. Audition's more pivotal because it gets me into it gets me into diving into Asian film. Mm-hmm. And Halloween's pivotal because it's the it's the horror movie. It's it's the thing that created my love of horror. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. just curious. 
Silence is the one where I'm like, eh. and Rebecca's kind of an, uh, I don't want to call Rebecca a horror film, but like, so Silence creates my love of movies, um, which I, I really, a good shot would have said Silence should be number one, but like, it's been like, like I'd say just loving movies shouldn't be the reason why you put a film number one. Mm-hmm. Um, Halloween defines like horror for me. Uh-huh. Uh, audition gets me into Asian cinema. So and for the I people like that audition. are keeping track, there you go. <laughs> oh wait, were you, was this part of the episode? <laughs> well, I can edit. Do you want me to, I can edit that out if you want. Oh, I thought you were asking me as on that side. No, it doesn't matter. Okay. Keep that in. All right. That's that's the next. That's the, the three horror films we're going to talk about, and that's the reasons why they're on my list, guys. I, I hope I hope someone was listening to this and being like, I knew it, I knew it. And I think I think they would have predicted two of those. Audition will be a surprise for them. And they're still the people that use AOL Instant Messenger, and they're going online <laughs> right now, being like, they're like aim. <laughs> Somebody's going on MSN Messenger. Oh no, they have their GeoCities site. Yeah, Jay is a young girl in suburb Detroit, uh, in an unspecified time period, who is. You know, living a typical teenage life, she's about ready to go off to college, we're to believe, and she's uh, pretty smitten with Hugh, a new boy. Um, he seems pretty affable, pretty decent guy, taking her to organ recordings of old Grant Hepburn films. Um, but he's, he's got his quirks, you know? He's got his quirks, but, but Jay feels pretty good with him. She nervously talks about him to her friends um and and eventually she decides that you know it's time she she sleeps with 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 you she, she's ready to take it to the next level she's has these romantic ideas of what love is um uh, you doesn't share those opinions because he chloroforms the shit out of her <laughs> and ties her to a wheelchair uh, and uh, you know, leaves her in an abandoned psychiatric hospital. Not really abandons her, but uh, leaves her in there until she wakes up because Hugh has been followed by some sort of entity that is a curse, as it were, that follows and ultimately wants to kill a person who uh, has had sex with the last person in the curse. It is a chain letter of boning murder. (laughs) Hugh drops Jay off with her friends and Jay tries to navigate uh, the way she's going to get out of this predicament while it continues to follow her in everywhere part of her life. She, She doesn't know what to do. She uses her friends to help find Hugh because Hugh, it turns out, has used a pseudonym and has bought a house in a decrepit, or not bought, rented a house in a decrepit part of Detroit because he does not want to be tied back to her. He doesn't want to be tied back to this entity. Uh, eventually she finds him. Um, she is told that she just needs to pass it on. You know, you're a girl. You can sleep with whoever and just sleep with somebody and forget about it. But, you know, Jay, Jay feels, doesn't feel necessarily right about that she continues just to try to run away and meanwhile neighbor greg who's kind of the suave dude kind of joins along with this escapades and they try to escape to northern michigan thinking they can get away from it but 
evident, you know, inevitably it, it, it comes on the heels and comes for her. Um, eventually Jay relents and sleeps with Greg. Um, Greg doesn't think anything's wrong until Greg gets banged to death by it in the form of his mother. And Jay is left back at square one. Uh, eventually Jay and her friends, Paul Yar and her sister Kelly, uh, devise a plan to kill it in a swimming pool. Um, they uh, possibly successfully do so. Uh, Jay then sleeps with Paul, uh, who has had a fire for her since a young age. And the film ends with Jay and Paul walking down a sidewalk while in the background of a mysterious figure um, is walking towards them and, and could be it or could not be it. When I first saw this film, as I said, everyone talks about the idea of, of this being the weight of sexually transmitted disease and the weight of responsibilities in terms of having sex that a person would would come into into adulthood. Um, every review. And after I saw this, I was like, that's fucking nonsense. And I searched out reviews of the time to find anything, anything that would suggest maybe it's something a little more than just a sexually transmitted monster. Um, didn't find it. Found nothing of the sort. And I just got caught up so intensely in the fact that what is ultimately a slasher film, uh, one of the most exciting things for me when this movie starts is the fact that the mentioned films slides across the screen in the beginning, you know, being a fan of Halloween, uh, the Halloween, like the Halloween sequels and of Scream, the mentioned pictures to me when I see it slide across the screen means a horror movie is going to start. Like it's, sure. it's a Pavlovian response to me, yep. you know, and, what is ultimately following a lot of the functions of the slasher did a lot more. It, 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 so this film's kind of bookend by two moments from Dostoevsky's Idiot. Not necessarily a film, but Jay's story from the moment where Jay's dumped off uh, by Hugh, ending after Yar is shot in the hospital, reading only slightly into um, The Idiot. Not even that far. Um, the moment that strikes more for me is that that final reading where she says, you know, in the idiot, the character's kind of on the guillotine and it talks about uh, that kind of like split second where you realize that death's gonna come at that quarter of a second. And, you know, she says like in, the moment will come like in the hour, in the minute, in a second, at this very instant, um, you know, roughly paraphrasing, you know, your soul will leave your body and you no longer be a person. And, all these reviews like just spoke about like the dangers of sexually transmitted disease. And I'm like, it's, it's bigger than that. You have, you know, that, that reference um, in that just great Halloween callback. And now we have an next point about how many great callbacks there are to other horror slashers, especially, um, or the, the professor's reading from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, who's, you know, not only talking about like, sensuality and sexuality and his inability to kind of fulfill that um but also like this undeniable sense of mortality you know and if this is the most basic kind of 
subtext a film could have. But to me, this film, the thing that resonated with me is like, this is a film just about how, you know, sex represents kind of this one stepping from the anonymity that is adolescence. This is a film that is almost completely devoid of adult characters. Yep. You know, you have the professor, you have a mother in like two scenes, um, like Hugh's mother and I, and, you know, the main character's mother. Um, and you have the police officer of speaking roles, but they are so tertiary characters that they don't even exist. Um, and this film exists in a time undone. It is a time that is not whimsical. It is, it is an ephemeralness. It's a dream like this. It has this misplacedness because it's, it, 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 interestingly enough, this more to me represents like adolescence. This ad is represents adolescence to me. Like what at the what adolescence is. It's like a moment in time where the world is kind of your own and it's a big old bubble you put yourself in. Mm. And you know, sex is that that little pin that pops that. One of many things. Mm. Um but it's, that mm, it's got me, got me curious. Uh, maybe I'll stop and, and let you count, maybe count here after I do this first point. Um, and, you know, everything kind of opens up. Like, then it is just this force of, of death. It represents the inevitability of death. There are moments initially where it's following her, where it's presented to you with the tensest way that, that and I know you'll, you'll say you hate it, but... I fucking, this amazing disaster piece score, because uh, I know you just don't like the disaster piece. Um, <laughs> that, that chimp, that chip pop score, you know, he's got that Fez Hyper Life Drift style going, um, where he, she initially sees it has this, I mean, she initially sees it has um, Hugh's mother, but when it's actually her it, it's an old, decrepit woman, um, you know, just, just this, this, understanding of what's to come and and that's intense but then as it kind of comes in it becomes a mundane acceptance when she's at the high school it's just there she sees it there's this great um rack focus zoom like when they're in the car and she's just having a conversation and it's coming at her it's you know we got a close zoom or we got a close focus and then it racks shifts to further away where you could just see it walking towards her and she's just like having a conversation because it's inevitable and just trying to put it to her head and it all coalesces in the end which now interestingly this last viewing i have i have an issue with because i i've kind of sh like I, every time i watch this film i have a shifting opinion on what's going on um where she's walking with paul and you see that person in the background um walking towards her at walking towards, I guess it would be Paul actually, um, potentially, where it could be death, but like because, you know, this this dumb adolescent goofy love that's here, you know, potentially like you blind yourself to that because you just you find things to distract yourself from it, and it's the basest thing ever, you know, it's the basest subtext ever, but when I saw this movie, I was like, oh, that's exactly what this is about. It's about just you know, the growth from adolescence to adulthood the realization of mortality, the kind of grappling with that. And nothing in the, the culture talked about that at 
all. And I was like blown away. And it was the thing. And I, I, I think ultimately like, this is a big reason why it's my, on the pivotal list. It was the, it was the thing where I was like, God, like it's fucking clear. Like nobody's writing a WordPress article in 2015 about how this is just a movie that kind of is so solely about death. And now you see everything and it's just like, this is a movie about death and about what it means to become an adult. And like the things that clear your head. And like the reason it's at 25, the reason it kind of is is the beginning of the emotional gamut of how I feel with film. Um, beyond being my favorite horror movie, and I'll explain why uh, beyond you know, the story beats in a bit once I get like your feelings, um, is the fact that it's the thing where I'm like, I fucking know movies. Like I fucking can, I, I maybe I'm not good at dissecting literature. I'm sure as shit and not good at, I mean, I'm okay at dissecting literature. I'm sure as shit not good at dissecting music. I'm not good at dissecting a lot of things um, besides politics. I think my roommate just laughed at that. <clears throat> um, <laughs> but I, I can I can dissect the shit out of a movie. Yeah. And I was like, I could do this. I can I have something to offer this. Yeah, well, we kind of talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, for me too. Like the moment you realize that you have uh like a differing opinion um, than everybody else about a film, I think is a, is, is the same when you, when you find it in books and or music or I don't know, art and you don't feel like you're wrong. You feel like you're totally, you feel like you're totally right. And it just all weirdly makes sense. And um, you can kind of justify, what did I say that I was, that, Roger Ebert was wrong about. I forget which movie I was talking about. It doesn't matter. Um, watch this movie twice because I wanted to do it the correct amount of justice, Mario. And the first time I watched it, I was alone. I didn't turn the lights on. Uh, I wanted to get the experience. You know what I mean? I wanted to. I wanted to be in. Um, and it kind of it was flat. It fell flat. And then I read some reviews and I thought I kind of understood why it fell flat for me because I think one of the things that's clear, this movie makes very clear for me. Actually it was, it's not pivotal, but it's enlightening. And so I, I, I very appreciate having gotten the opportunity to watch it and kind of study it and kind of go through it because one of the things that's always bugged me about myself and I suppose it's bugged me about this podcast is that like, I don't necessarily get the horror movie thing. So we are never going to be able to have like a, 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 a fully together conversation about horror movies because I don't really get them. And I think one of the things from reading lots of reviews about this is that it's a movie that seems to work best when you are a horror movie person and what is that what does that mean i don't know that means i suppose i didn't find this movie scary at all like in in, in any way shape or form i thought the scariest part was that moment when um jay's in her bedroom and she's locked herself in the bedroom and then uh and and then paul and um kelly come in and then the doorknob starts to shake and it's Yara kind of, I guess, talking on the other side. And then it is Yara. But then that guy just like kind of comes in behind her. 
That was uh, jumped. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, that guy. He just he died a few years ago. Oh, really? Okay. So rest in peace, that guy. I jumped at that part. Um, the rest of it, I didn't. I didn't care one way or the other what happened to any of them. And part of it is because, um, and I know it's a movie. And part of it, I think there. I think it's a, there's a threefold part. Um, and I don't know. What, I don't want to step on your toes at all. So I won't. I won't tell you what you texted me because I. I, don't, I wonder if you're going to get to that. Um, but I think part of it was because I think you might be right about the death thing. I think part of the problem with this movie, though, Mario, is that there's a, a big premium put on the sex here. Okay, so it could be about like the inevitability of death. But before that, a bunch of people have to have a bunch of random sex with each other just to make a monster go away. You know what I mean? Like the intention is to have sex, pass the monster along as quickly and as as, as humanly possible. There's a whole bunch of uh, narrative ramifications to that idea. There's a whole bunch of narrative ramifications to like the kind of the anxiety of Hugh. You know what I mean? Uh, about like how far back does this go like in reality are there a whole bunch of people that are feeling like a long line of anxiety like oh my god i hope that all those people don't die so they don't get to me um but the first i was reminded of this david foster wallace quote when i started watching it and he said in the 90s he said, AIDS gift to us lies in the loud reminder that there's nothing casual about sex at all. And obviously, it's fairly obvious to anyone who's seen It Follows as to why I would think about that. You know what I mean? Like, there's supposed to be all of these casual encounters that are expected. I think, like, you're right, of, of people in late stage adolescence where you're just kind of, if you like a guy and you're okay with it, you are going to have, you can have sex with them. And I think it carries, it carries some meaning, but I don't think the meaning is always clear. I think the interesting thing about this movie is that this movie decides to clarify that for you. You know what I mean? Like you made this decision and I've read a bunch of problematic reviews about the idea that like she's making, it's about making good or bad decisions. Um, you know, I, I, I fail to see where, Hugh is at any point a, a bad decision um, until, you know, he chloroforms her and ties her to a chair. Um, but then, I don't know, the moment that I kind of took me out of it was in that chair scene when he says to her, they're slow, but they're not dumb. And that's where I kind of felt the separation. It was like a kind of like, it was like a permanent cleaving of my attempt to kind of understand or get into horror movies. Because as a horror movie fan, I'm assuming, and you can fill me in on this, you look at that and you say, what? I mean, Scream was all about that, right? Scream was literally about that line. It was about acknowledging the kind of ideas that have been in horror movies for like the longest time ever. And in doing so kind of establishing an ownership of those ideas, allowing you to subvert those ideas. I mean, that's what, that's what scream is about. And I think that's, what's going on here with, you know, they're slow, but they're not dumb. But for me, it's 
it's like um this weird piece of narrative information that I don't want to know that I want to be able to figure out for myself, but that this, the director needs to establish like a set of rules. You know what I mean? Like, I think all horror movies have to establish pretty early on a a set of rules that the rest of the movie is going to uh, operate based on. Am I, am I right about that? I mean, I'm assuming that's correct. It's, Seems correct from it's, every it's, horror movie. It's seen. basically so every single major horror movie villain has, has and a lot of the reviews for this say like, oh, the reason why it is scary is the fact that it doesn't operate by clearly defined rules or personality traits. It does, however, have certain amounts of it. I would say from a horror movie standpoint, those rules are way looser than they would ever in any sort of horror film. Where you create a villain. And so that's weird because that's a problem for me too. It's weird that our initiation with this being is with Jay and she and Hugh sleep together and then Hugh chloroforms her and then she wakes up presumably that night, right? In, in, in. It's it's at night. Okay. She has. Because they talk about her going on the date. Right. So we, she has sex with Greg in the hospital. Are we to assume that Greg has seen no people? Has seen no beings coming after him? Because it's established that it's several days later when he finally like sees the first person. He doesn't even see them. It's his uh uh, uh you know manifestation of his mother like knocking at his door. How come it she sees it instantaneously and he doesn't see it for days and days and days? It's. This is my problem. Can, with, can, I, can, I res, can I respond to that really quickly? Well, I just. I, I yeah. It is. My problem is that like this is just horror movies. From a horror a, movie standpoint, this is horror movies and exactly. But that's my whole thing. This is horror movies in a nutshell. No, 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 no. But I, I'm actually, I'm actually saying like this movie oh, okay. responds to it. Um. So a, a major horror movie cliche is the fact that like often rules are set and the rules are broken by convenience. Um. There is the entire idea that it follows you wherever, right? It's always going to follow you. It's always walking. A major problem exists when they're playing the game early on. Uh, one of the things that also points to the death is where he says, like, how did you feel about being the kid when they're watching the movie? You know, he says, like, I'd like to be that kid. And he points out the girl. He's like, that girl. Mm-hmm. She's like, what girl? But it's all, and he says, that girl's standing. It breaks the rule, right, of the fact that um, it – is always walking later on uh when jay's in the swimming pool she says it's just standing there and there's moments where it's just it just ends up standing like all we have a frame of reference is hughes uh, let me finish with this this yeah. is this is going to be explaining the the kind of uh ideology of heart um and the ways in which a horror script works differently than a lot of our film scripts um it's just standing there because it just it just operates by the reason we don't have rules set is because of the fact that the only rules we have for it like when he says it's dumb that's just his take on it we don't fucking know what it is okay no he says now, it's slow to, but it, he says it's slow yeah, but it's, it's, it's not just, dumb it's slow but yeah it's slow but it's not dumb we don't necessarily know it's it's all from his point of view we don't ever establish rules for this thing it it lives by its own beat from the structural screenplay standpoint now you say um now there's there's a lot 
in this, and this is a major part of horror, is you set up something, you set a Chekhov's gun on early on, and you fulfill it later on um, uh-huh. to kind of necess- to kind of fulfill a necessitation of a story beat. Multiple times throughout this film, when we're introduced to Greg, he's with different women. Um, after he sees, after he has sex with, um, he, and when he first sees Yara, he's checking out Yara. He checks out Kelly. What After he has sex with Jay, he's with three women chatting with them. Things like that are supposed to lead you as a horror movie guy to go like, oh, he clearly just had sex with one of those girls. She got killed and it's, it came back to him. Mm-hmm. There's there's those See, moments. It's, I, it's just it's it, and the entire big thing too is like the, the play with her father. Like early on, you see the picture of her father from a distance. Then you see her father has the it at the end, and then it kind of goes back to that. It's horror is very much well done. Horror is very much about setting the table for whatever story beat you need to fill later on. Right. Which I understand to, fundamentally you hate that. Which but like I, well, it's I, I defending it. I think it's, I hate it because it is, um, it removes any real emotion from this movie. Like, I don't, I couldn't have cared less if one of these people, if any of these people lived or died. I assumed they would all die, and I couldn't give two shits if they died. I, I assumed, like, because it's a horror movie, Literally, if they were only go- one of and only one of them dies, right? <laughs> like, and nobody if, cares about that first girl. And if they were gonna, well, in the first, and I'm, and, and so basically, I don't know. I, I would like to read the quote that you sent me that like David Robert Mitchell like said about this movie in the in the dream state thing. I think mm. there's too much. There's too much emphasis on the unreality of it. There's too much emphasis on the convenience of the idea that it could be anybody. There's too many there's too many weird little crutches. There's too much just assumed there's too much just assumed stuff. Like I would like you to tell me because I just want to know where the idea that it could be electrocuted and actually and actually kill it came from. Like where? In... That's just it was it was a shot in the dark. But that's so my okay. So I will also I'll, I'll get to I'll get into my opinion about stuff with that too. I mean, has to go into the responsibility aspect. Okay. Like so, you I I asked you when I first watched it within like ten minutes, like what the hell year is this supposed to be? Because everyone's got old TVs sitting on chairs and they're driving old cars, and it's Detroit. That girl driving a new car though. Yeah. Um, and you sent me that Mitchell said this, that there are production design elements from the fifties on up to modern day. A lot of it is from the seventies and eighties that an e-reader, that e-reader cell phone or shell phone you're talking about is not a real device. It's a 60 shell compact that we turn into a cell phone e-reader. So I wanted modern things, but if you show a specific smartphone now, it dates it, but it's too real for the movie. It should, it would bother me anyway. So we made one up. And all of that is really just to create the effect of a dream, to place it outside of time and make people wonder about where they are. Those are things that I think happen to all of us when we have a dream. If it's a dream, I don't fucking care. I mean, if it's a dream, it's not scary at all. It's meaningless. It has no weight. It's all the... And it also allows you to do whatever the fuck you want, which removes all stakes 
from like whatever's happening. And I think the problem with this movie, and I, I said to you, I think he, I think it's, what did I say earlier before? I said, I'm going to argue that the, that the ambiguity of it, like, uh, they, the, that those ambiguous things work against him and that they act like a mask and that mask and they constrict his talent. I, he's clearly from this and under a silver lake is a fabulous director of film, but I would compare him to, and you know, this is, and I'm doing it. So this is like, it's like the first thing that pops in my head as an English major, you read a writer who has like a, a unbelievable control of like the language. You know what I mean? And you read these sentences. You're like, oh, that sentence is so clean. All the commas are in the right place. They are like working the shit out of a semicolon. They got like parentheses and dashes and everything's, but they've got, they've got no real clear idea of anything that they want to say. And so I think in this case, he just makes it up. And I think that's the that was the problem with Under the Silver Lake is that Under the Silver Lake, in a lot of ways, I could have watched for for days. And I think on some level, I, one of the reasons I think it's so disappointing is that it looks so good and it feels so good, but it's got nothing to say. And I I think this has something to say. But if you're trying to throw me off base with these shell phones and like this weird aesthetic choices and all these other things you're gonna you're gonna also run into the problem where like i just don't give a shit and i'm not gonna be scared if someone's chasing jay because it doesn't matter because it all feels like a dream anyway it's a motorcycle that tyrannosaurus rex it's a motorcycle (laughs) on a, a tyrannosaurus rex on a motorcycle and that i think that was the problem like the the movie opens with that 360 shot, which is great. One of the things I love about this movie, too, is he, he's doing those 360 shots. And I remember listening to this Wesley Morris interview about Waves last year where he was like, oh, no one's ever done a 360 shot before. And I'm looking at, like, it follows him. It's like, well, there's a 360 shot, like, every 10 seconds. So uh, clearly someone has done these 360 shots before. But he's doing that 360 shot of that girl running around in high heels in her and her underpants out of her house around in a circle runs back into her house says goodbye to her dad gets in her car and drives away and then she's like folded up on a on a on a beach later and i'm thinking two things cool why and i think that's in a nutshell this is me with it follows mario after two viewings and like way too much time thinking about it i say cool why? And I, I don't think he has any answers for me. And I think it's I think yeah, he's that's, that's, one of these people that's got to get over whatever the fuck he's afraid of as a filmmaker. Whatever is like inside of him that he's afraid to kind of let out of himself, he's got to find what that is and let it out. Because these movies are just like they're pushaway movies. I mean, I, I've, Under the Silver Lake is more of a pushaway movie. But they're both just kind of like uh, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to like let too much of what I actually think out. I want to make a. I want to stick in a genre thing because it's safe and it allows me to kind of manipulate pieces however I want to manipulate them. Um, but I, I'm like so interested to have more conversations about this. So uh, like, like hammer on like on top of like everything I just said. You know what I mean? 
I mean, this movie is is uh, from a thematic standpoint raised back from King of Staten Island. I I 100% agree with that. Um, he is throwing a lot of thematic things on the floor. He has you know the idea the slight conversation about sexual sex, um, the conversation about death. He has this this kind of odd but uh, conversation I still kind of connect to about. Um, the socioeconomic disparities uh, of Detroit kind of thrown in there. Uh, yeah. Just, which still ultimately relates back to his, which still relates back to his entire um, discussion about like the eyes. I mean, ultimately to me, this is like adolescence to adulthood sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like I, I love that like eight mile like talk where she says like, you know, I needed permission to go with my parents to eight to be, below eight mile and it leads into disaster pieces title um the the thing that the thing the thing though that works is that when you i i I knew this was going to happen like (laughs) because of the reason and it's it's also happens with um i think in the same way and i don't know if we're has desperate desperate of people when it comes to like the world of like big lebowski or the world of like the inherent vice movie of um, yep. nihilistic comedy. Like I'm uh, super into nihilistic comedy. I don't think your has much into kind of like stoner nihilistic comedy, I guess kind of like whatever. Well, we both have, um, I mean, we're both going to, we're at 25. We're not going to talk about big Lebowski for another. I don't know. We're going to talk about it twice in the next 24 weeks or whatever it is. Um, but it's not going to be for a while still. So, oh, I guess it's more. I guess it's more this. Like my relation to those things is more closely connected to California, and how close to the shit chest they are to California. But and what I'm trying to say is like, like there's a real desperateness between like how we've come to view these things. But here's what I would and say like about the, the way in which we're able to to go into them. But here's what I would say and, about that and. Is that Big Lebowski in Inherent Vice very early on established the rules? And this is this is true of of uh, fiction, of nonfiction, of movies, of 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 music. You know what I mean? You know what's like the worst thing ever is an is an is a record where like the first song is like an acoustic song and the second song is like a rock song and then the third song is like a dance song and then the fourth song is some kind of like ambient wash song you know what i mean there's like no rules it's just kind of like we're just throwing all these things that we did at like your ears and like hoping you like it i mean the cohen brothers very quickly established what the nature of this world is going to be so the absurd things that happen inside it all work and that's from you know, Maud Lebowski, you know, uh, attached to a kind of apparatus where she swings through the air and just flings paint wildly at a canvas or the nihilists or Jackie Treehorn or any of these like weirdo things. And even the dream sequences, all of that stuff works within the frame that they've created. My, my, not necessarily problem with this movie, but like the disconnect between me and this movie is that there are no, he's established very early on in the movie that there's no rules and that beyond there's no rules. It's that that he's trying to establish a world where there are, he's trying to establish a larger world where there are no rules and he can kind of do whatever he wants with it. 
And so it removes, for me, because I'm not a horror movie guy, like the tropes of horror movie don't mean anything to me. It removes all the stakes. So I don't have to be scared of anything because I don't care. Like, I just assume everyone's going to get... Like, when that kid bursts through the door, and it's the first time we see a kid, um, I'm just like... Second oh. time. Is do we see a kid? That, I, didn't, I didn't notice. It's well, the, it it is one of the it is one of the neighbor that kid in that moment is one of the neighbors that's watching them watching her swimming. Okay, um, but again, you don't get a. I don't think you ever get a good enough view of. I I didn't notice that that was that kid. Um, Tom, you got to watch this movie seventeen times. Sure, that, um, at least. But I didn't have to be scared because it didn't matter because by that point it didn't matter to me what happened you, to them. Do you think horror needs to scare you? Do you think horror needs to to do that at it, all? Like, a, a, does it need to elicit? What does it need to elicit? It for needs, you? but it's. I think it's the same thing as as the Virgin Suicides. I there has to be a real emotion attached to it, and it if if you can mess it up, I think the reason the green room works until it stops working when they introduce the drug lab underneath the the building um, is because there's real same here, em- by the way, 2016. Yeah. There's real emotions there. You know what I mean? Like there's real legitimate fear because they've established the nature of this world. So I, we know who uh, Anton Yelkin and Alia Shawkat are up against and whoever else is playing the other characters. We know who they're up against. We know the nature of, of what they're up against we know what they have to fight back against them, and we know what those people have to fight them. Um, and so the tension goes right up because the emotions are real. Um, I think it's one of the things – I'm trying to think of a horror movie that I've like really connected to. Um, I'm assuming it's, – it's, I would say there's – there's. Uh, so I will say this. My, my thing is that – I agree because horror is emotionally disconnected outside of very big ideas. Horror is never going to, I struggle to call green room in a lot of its proclivities, a horror. I I mean, I could put it as a horror on this, but it it contains a lot more of the aspects of what would be a thriller than a horror. Uh, But horror in itself, like slasher or kind of like the ghost stories, um, ultimately put you in a frame of mind much like the frat comedies that are 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 that genre would be devoid of personal stakes or emotions with the character i i never care about what's gonna happen to these characters i i like the bigger ideas Hmm. um i don't think horror ever did that like halloween doesn't do that nightmare on elm street doesn't do that i've tried so many times to write spec scripts, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near talented, that try to do that. I'm trying to do it again. Um, you know, it's it, it's just, I, I think it's it was nearly an impossibility of the genre. I think the only person who's been able to do it is Jordan Peele with Get Out. I think Get Out's yeah. the only movie yeah. where you you give a shit about a horror movie. I mean, Get Out is purely a horror film. Is It is in the vein of a... Um, maybe the original Wicker Man, too. Uh, maybe the original Wicker Man to a lesser degree, much lesser degree, and and Get Out are the only two films that get you emotional attachment. And I say this as a as in the world where everybody convinces themselves because Tony Collette gives a decent performance that 
you know, um, you care about the people in Hereditary. Well, yeah, and that's wrong. Nobody, nobody does, because and and you care about the people in Midsommar because there's like these emotion because because the only thing you can do in horror is real emotional manipulation. Yeah, like, because horror because horror to me has these strictly defined rules, and I don't think David Mitchell gives a fuck about how you care about how these characters. I don't think he cares. Mm-hmm. It's it's he's an idea guy. The reason you say like he does he abandon all the rules? Yeah. He abandons the rules to a huge degree. But, and I guess this is my big second point on this film. The second reason I love this film. This film, so, like, is is so, like, eminently, like, like something that's really carefully crafted in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of, of, of the way it kind of addresses horror and, and the way it plays with horror and the way it kind of navigates that, um, you know that theater they go to early on, like early on when they see charade, which I think is the kind of like a good sight gag for what's going to happen, is the mm-hmm. fact that Hugh, who ends up, takes her to see charade. The entire premise of charade is somebody pretending to be who they're not. I just, I don't know. It's a dumb thing, but I found that be funny. Um, you know, like it's they're at the Redford Theater, which is the movie theater where Evil Dead shown at. Uh, the way in which it responds to being shot and collapsing and then getting back up is a Michael Myers like trope through and through the way in which it plays is really reminiscent with its victims is really reminiscent of, of the things Kruger would do the scenes in which um, it's covered in uh, you see the hair rising or it gets the blanket thrown over it or at 100% like almost totally lifted from like Verhoeven's hollow man. And there's even a shot where you see like the fucking um, I think it's like a, a toaster fly at Jay in, in the water, yep. which is lifted from um, Brave Little Toaster. Miner? Yeah. No, I think it's Steve Miner. Steve Miner? Yeah. Steve Miner's uh, Friday 13th Part 3 um, in terms of like playing to that 3D effect. But the thing that, that, that connects to me with this is like he knows he's following a lot of these, he's following a lot of the horror movie rules, but also disestablishing himself from it. We're following a character who has casual sex with three different people and she's had casual sex before the virgin character is in the background her sister you know the thing that we would follow is is her sister it would in any sort of typical horror would be her sister um the villain itself starts losing at a lot of moments its own level of horror and just becomes a mundane thing that's there at, at many times um he he does a lot of these things that not necessarily. I don't want to say they, they're they're subversions of the genre, but they're not there to subvert the genre. What he's dedicating himself though to is the tonality of it, and I think that's what matters here. Is this is perfectly refined tonality of horror in terms of the way it edits itself and paces itself. It goes through these long beats uh, of of exposition, are calm before a burst. You know, yeah. these the short bursts of excitement. It's like and a Nirvana so song. It's, it's, to me, this is, yeah, it, it's this, I, I don't know. I said, yeah, I don't know what the fuck you mean by that. Um, <laughs> it is, and, and in the same way that like Under the Silver Lake to me has become like the distillation of like the Stoner California thing, like this is distilling horror. Like what you say is kind of like him stepping behind the veil and being too unassured 
and insecure of, of presenting himself forward is more just like him going like, yeah, whatever, like fucking around with it, but really distilling things down, just going like, I know how the fuck to craft something that the audience I'm trying to get to watch is going to eat the fuck out of. Like, they're th- going to eat this shit up. And I have these things that you could watch and kind of like hook into. Like there's still ideological thematic things you can hook into. But to the degree in which like the witch or Baba Duke, like people connect so extremely to the thematic issues of that, of those movies, like of the top horror films of the 2010s, this and it and get out to me are the, and get out just get out is a superior film it's just it's it's too much of an intellectual experience for me to have ever connected with but you saw my top of the 20s 2000s like i clearly respect get out um this and and get out are the only two films from the 2010s which like fucking get horror at like its base level like it is the skeleton of horror perfected see i would but here's what i'm going to say I'm not a horror guy. So I don't care about this movie. And Oh, no. That's, David, that's fine. And but, I mean, my, but, there's a reason why it's 25 on my list. Right. But like the David like David Robert <laughs> Mitchell, I think, is is a filmmaker who is beyond this type of really limited scope. If I it's if he's not making a movie, he can make a movie for whatever. I can't tell him why he should make movies. But I'm just saying from like a normal and and I'm definitely wrong. I mean, I read through all the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, people that I like have a large amount of respect for that I wouldn't think would have bought into something like this were like, oh, it's really scary. I didn't find it scary, but I also didn't. Oh, I don't think I don't think it's scary at all. I thought all. like I think it's I think it's tense. I think it, it, it's, oh, it, see, it's tense in the sense of it's tense in the sense of. It paces itself in the ways in which a film that would have got me at the age of yeah. 10 would get me. Like, if I saw this at 10, it would scare me. Like, Event Horizon, I'm sure, when I rewatch the, the producer's cut of it, I'm going to be like, oh, that's awesome because it's gory. But it's not going to scare the shit out of me like it used to. No. If I saw It Follows, if I saw It Follows when I was eight, or no, I saw It Follows when I was six, when I first saw Halloween, like, I'm sure that shit would terrify the shit out of me but horror doesn't work anymore because like when you're our age and because you know it's just like it's it's an abstract it's just dumb it, but i mean these things don't exist like the, the real world's more horrific than horror movies and i'm, I'm gonna I'm and, gonna, and i'm gonna try really hard when we get to like the halloween thing to kind of get into it too and i can at least halloween is a classic and i can kind of appreciate it on the level of a movie that helped establish essentially established a genre. When I first saw Halloween, uh, when I was, I don't know, in my very early teens, I was just like, what? And, and what? And the same thing with, uh, nightmare on Elm street. And the same thing with Friday the 13th. I was like, okay. And then what, what is, what is, what am I, what am I looking for here? And they're just like, well, you know, the guy comes out of the thing and he does the, whatever. And it's like, yeah, I, you know, it's what it is. It is what it is. Like, I don't know. I, I, it's maybe like well, a, a film failing of, of mine. It's just, it's like a hole and I've tried to fill it and I can't fill it. Like the Babadook was a cool movie until the Babadook was real. And then I don't care anymore because that's stupid. 
Make I'd rather you make a well, movie that's... where the Babadook is a metaphor and continues to be a goddamn metaphor for the whole movie. That's way scarier than like, no, there's actually a Babadook. And the same thing with Hereditary. Hereditary on the, the surface is a cool idea until he's the devil. Come on. You know what I mean? Like that I mean it, that's the stuff that like gets me about it's the stuff that gets me about horror, it's the stuff that gets me about not just like horror movies, but like literature and 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 like scary music or music that's supposed to kind of like take me into a dark place. If you're trying to take me into a dark place, I'm not going to find myself in a dark place. You know what I mean? But if you are Scott Walker and you make a mo- you make a 12-minute song that's about the death of Mussolini and in the middle of that song you have an extended period where you're hitting a side of beef with a baseball bat on top of a wooden box surrounded by microphones that sounds like you're kicking a dead body, legitimately sounds like you're kicking a dead body, I will be weirdly terrified of that. Because I don't know what it, because okay, so, I don't know what it is. There's an ambiguity to that. There's there's also like a an an earned intelligence to that that I can kind of be afraid of. There's well, that, part of my problem with this movie is that like she quotes the idiot twice. There's the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and I'm not 100 percent sure what they're when they're happening. I'm not sure what they're in service of. It sounds like it's almost like she's just he's just putting them there to make the movie seem like way smarter than it is. Cause I don't think they're really integrated super well. Uh, your point I think makes them integrated better than I think the idea that this movie is about sex has them integrated. You know what I mean? If this movie about, is about sex, those things don't matter. You know what I mean? But if this movie is about, if this movie is about death, this is movie is about the removal of like the mask of adolescence. That's a different thing. And I have to think about that. Um, but I think that's uh, he kind of ran this into is, the same problem with Under the Silver Lake, where he kind of wanted to establish a certain literariness, and in the end, it just kind of muddled. It just muddled whatever conversation he was having on film. But this is the thing. This is the thing for me. Like he is a genre guy, and I think like Ari Aster and like our like people like Ari Aster get caught up so heavily on, on creating the horror. I don't look at it follows as a scary movie. Nothing about this movie to me is scary in the least. I don't think, though, at all, outside of the one jump scare where um, that like the little kid pops into the frame in the busted out door, that this movie is meant to be scary. It's never meant to be scary. I don't think this is a scary movie. I don't. I think this is. Uh, it's. I think it's meant to be more like an ideas movie. Ideas loosely, a loosely framed idea. Yeah. But why have those scares in there then? Because it's presented in the genre of what scares, like what what scares are in have, this? But why have besides why, the kid? Besides but, the kid, what scares are in there? No, but like why have a girl folded in half? Why have that's not scary? That girl's just dead. But that's horror movie shit. You know what I mean? Why have that? it's horror movie shit? But why not? Why can't you just? Do, why can't you do horror if it's if it gets to a point like this? There's a very deliberate point in this movie where it becomes the mundane where all the shit happening to her is bore it's not boring to her but it just is happening to her the only time it then becomes scary to her in the end is when it's her dad and i think that's relates more to the ideas thing um which is the kind of one thing i want to close on because this was the new revelation i had when i watched this movie um and that's the reason like this movie keeps giving to me but but 
like outside of like that jump scare and like the initial time where she sees it because you're like trying to build that framework of horror like and yeah like when you see that girl folded up like that's building the framework of horror after that nothing is is scary like she's watching somebody kind of like trying to break into the into greg's house and she's kind of like oh 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 i need to do something about this and yeah she ends up reacting in fear but it is not it, like the, the, if not but what about it's, the girl pe- what about the woman peeing herself with like the weird misshapen face and mouth that's like peeing herself while she's walking towards her you know what i mean i don't know and, I, I always i i actually i never got that moment and what about um but i mean even even the you know like what most of the stuff's just like kind of unsettling like the naked naked Hughes mom or the naked guy on top of the roof or the very tall you know, basketball twin, or um, the old, even, or the the student following them, you know, and, and moments like it, 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 it even gets ends up getting played off as a joke when Yara's like the like it's following her as Yara leads up to like the hair thing, and then Yara kind of just like slinks into the frame, you know, like a lot of the things that would be presented as, as like really horrific, scary moments, like they would just be edited slightly differently. You know, there'd be a slight way in which the entire framework of things are, is given to you to make it seem bigger. To so this is kind of see, like it's kind of goofy when when a uh, cure Gilchrist um, Paul gets like kicked away, like he just goes fucking fly. Like it's kind of funny. You know, a, a lot of it, a lot of like the scare moments are kind of presented with like a bit of like white comedy, like the like trying the door and then picking up a rock and throwing it through the like window. Like Dave, I think he's, and I think he does this with under the silver lake too. rewatching it. He's kind of just like, I can do this genre really fucking good, but I don't care enough about the, I, I, I don't, it's, I do care, but I don't, I know that all of this has been done before and I'm not bringing anything new to the table, but I can do it. Hmm. But and why I do it? You, you connect but to it. Why not make something original? Like why lean on the uh, why lean on and then try to subvert the tropes? Why because not just I, try I to think... establish like a uh, uh, your own kind of vision of this stuff? Because I've told you this a thousand times. If if I ever got a hundred million dollars to do a movie i would fucking throw it into a slasher movie and i know i'd try to throw a bunch of ideas into it and i know i'd try to subvert all the tropes and i know i would like not i would know i'd focus so much and not playing to those things and know like oh it's it's not gonna be scary but it's like it gets to a point where this thing becomes i don't know if it's so ingrained in you it's so ingrained it's it's your the reason you're into movies yep is because of such and such. Yeah, you know, but it's, I, it's like it's like it's like the music, the music, uh, any film that has to do with music, like I don't care about, like because I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, because it's it's just it's the the chemicals in my brain yeah. have aligned in a way where this is my thing, and sure. like I feel like I like I would express myself through this. Um, and you know, this is the second film. I still haven't watched the myth of the American sleepover. Um, it's on Hulu, so I will give it a watch. But um, like, 
this film is is to me just like that perfectly delineated horror and then it on top of that instead of just being like instead of just focusing in on the horror it just goes like oh i could do that i can do this well but on top of this i will throw ideas like on top of this i will throw the fact that i'm a better filmmaker than this but i still really love the genre and i want to make something in the genre yeah. And that's the thing I get is like the dude. The dude loves the genre. Yeah, and like that's... the dude clearly loves horror, but then he just he, so he wants like sometimes it becomes this obsession. Like I know, like inevitably, when I ever write anything, like the reason I always stop writing anything when, it, when it's a screenplay or a book is I just fucking go back to making it a horror, even though it's it doesn't mean it doesn't relate to it at all. I can't help myself. Mm, yeah. But I would, I wonder how we get to, so we said that Get Out's a superior movie, which it is. I wonder how Get Out feels so fresh, and to me this feels so, like, oddly stale. And it's, again, it's just because, because it's... I, I, can tell, I can tell you why. I, I can tell you why is because of the fact that um, and it's the reason why, like, like when Evil Dead came out, it felt fresh. Um, because Sam Raimi comes at it from so comedy and horror are once once one another. Like they're coming on top of each other. They 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 only they respond to moments of spikes and lulls to get that next spike. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Like. I mean, outside your Zucker, your Abram Zucker uh, stuff, like like which is just a constant spike. Like they they rely on audience manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, like David R. Mitchell is not a comedy guy. We could see that because a lot of the humor that Andrew Garfield delivers in um, Under the Silver Lake falls flat. Not because of Dave, not because of Garfield, but just because Mitchell's maybe not a comedy guy. Um, Jordan Peele is so is such a master comedian. Like Key and Peele's in the last ten years, probably like solidly the pinnacle, like one of the pinnacles of comedy for me. Sure. Um, and I, I, I guess in the culture it's accepted. Um, and is also at the same time a horror guy, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, and the fact that like the three major features he's had his hands deep in and Keanu, excluding Keanu, um, have been horror. Mm-hmm. Um, that he know that when you're the top of the game at one thing and really familiar at the other thing, you're going to be able to, and also have a really strong single narrative that you want to lay on top of it. Like there is no questions about like what Get Out's trying to say. It is it has one major overarching theme. The same thing the, like us has two major overarching themes of race relations and also socioeconomic relations. Um, but he, he so carefully defines get out and then is so earnest in just presenting get out as a horror, um, but focusing on the message that it's just, it's, it's a, it's somebody who is such a master of two major genres that are so closely linked that it feels fresh because of the fact that it's hitting 
the peaks of both genres at the same time. But here's what the I was saying. Like I said, with Evil Dead is is Sam Raimi so closely tied to horror and comedy, and the Coens even had some you know ties with with Evil Dead and like Crime Wave to follow. Like when you're so closely related to like the the B grade genre films of the sixties and seventies and in comedy, you're gonna know how to flow with it. But I would say this. One of the reasons I like Get Out is because I really cared about what happened to Daniel Kalia. And when Allison Williams flipped, it was like a big deal. And when Catherine Keener, who seems so oddly helped, like Bradley Whitford, yeah, it's questionable at all. At the best of times, well, Bradley, Bradley Whitford's suspicious. But when Catherine Keener, I mean, I mean that's that's intentional, right? Well, but but he's sure. just always that. I mean, even in the West Wing, I just assumed he was going to ruin everything for everybody at some point. Um, but Catherine, when Catherine Keener kind of is revealed is in the same vein to be kind of in on it, you're just like, well, what the fuck? And that's and it's it isn't until very late in that movie that it turns into like a horror movie. You know what I mean? Where he's putting antlers through people's faces and, uh, you know. People are dying and, oh, and all no, this other stuff. No, that movie's a horror that movie's a horror movie from the get go. Like like the But it doesn't the thematic the, paces. Like, what are you defining as a horror movie? But the, so this is my this is my argument, Mario, is that there are you and there are you and your ilk who can say definitively they can look at a movie and they can say, Well, it's hitting these beats. It's hitting these horror beats, so it's a horror movie. But in reality, like for the longest time, the movie is a kind of different. Like you mentioned, like you mentioned a hybrid. It's kind of like a different kind of movie. It's a movie that we haven't seen anymore. We haven't seen where it's hitting these beats. It's hitting one movie's kind of beats. It's hitting this other movie's kind of beats. But because there's an emotional center to it, it's also hitting a third movie's beats. And I think this is where us, I think, is a, is ends up being. While it has its 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 flaws is a, a very successful movie because at its center it's hitting it's hitting some of the it's hitting all those same beats it added a fourth and fifth beat which it didn't hit as clearly but it's still at it's, it's hitting these weird depths it's hitting these depths and it's hitting them more um confidently than it seems that Mitchell is hitting his beats you think Mitchell would be really excited the fact that we're that you're like saying you're not doing get out, buddy? <laughs> well, I think I'm going to be very honest with you. I think he'd probably have. I think he would. He would want to. Under the Silver Lake was so weird. I and I don't know what he's working on. Do you know what he's working on now? Is he working on something? I mean, not, is, not, not, no, no, nothing. I would nothing guess that's been public. <clears throat> I would guess it's because he has. He doesn't really know what that's supposed to be. He's made these two movies, and one of them is considered like three or three never, movies. Nobody has ever seen. But who cares? About that? the American He made these three movies. One of them is considered a, a, a genre classic, and one of them is considered a complete and total failure outside of the Reddit community. Or and and Brett Easton Ellis, who, you know, is uh, and now and now me and well, you're a Reddit guy too, so. I mean, you're not one of those. You're not okay. one of the Reddit people, but you're like you're you know you go on Reddit. Um, I I'm I wonder if he's grappling with whatever the next thing is, like whatever the next evolution of himself as a filmmaker. If he's he made this genre movie because he knew he could do it. He tried to branch out in a genre way, but like to expand it 
in Under the Silver Lake. And now, you know, I'm not saying he's going to make like an indie drama, nor should he make an indie drama. But I wonder if he's going if his next movie will lean so heavily into the film noir tropes, you know, juxtaposed on top of like a modern LA setting, or a horror tro- uh, like horror tropes uh, subverted to make a, a a larger point than like the traditional horror film is is generally designed to make. Um, like, I wonder if he's going to, if the next step is to branch out beyond those things is to kind of unleash himself from those. Um, and I think there's a, there's a, uh, there's a precedent in filmmaking for really talented directors to do that in their, in their third, in their third film, you know what I mean? Or in their, like in their fourth film, um, you know, uh, like Paul Thomas Anderson with Magnolia just like blew everything up. You know, I mean, it's Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, hew really closely to his influences, and then Magnolia just, like, tears shit apart. Uh, I don't know why he's the first person that comes to mind, but, um, yeah, I'd be, I'm, I'm interested, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm is David, is David Robert Mitchell my, my Paul Thomas Anderson? You, only you can answer that question, Mario. <laughs> I can't say yet. Um, no, it's, it's just, Getting back to the crux of it, and I, this, this is why I always assumed what happened. It's just the fact that like it's for two people of two different beats, and I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you. <laughs> I, I'd always thought that maybe you were gonna take this from a point of view of like you're wrong, instead of a point of view of like oh, we're coming at this from from two various different ways. Oh no no like, no no no. no. I, I could I could do another two hours on this just just going into the ways in which it addresses horror and the way and going into like a long history of horror, but I unfortunately have no horror movie friends. So I'm sorry. Well, that's the problem. Is that all the I... horror all the horror movie friends are fucking weirdos, which always <laughs> I know not my friends, but all the horror movie people I ever talked to are really. Yeah, maybe I'll, I don't know. I want to get on this thing, but it's just like there's always something just off, antisocial about horror movie people, man. Um, I told I you a story get... about one guy that I met, and uh, that is 100 percent true. I moved out of rooms that we were in together alone as quickly as humanly possible because uh, he was going to expound on the virtues of some insane horror movie that nobody had seen but him. Uh, and say it was, you know, make an Armand White point to say that it was. Did you see that he said Fast Seven was better than this in his best worst lists of that year? Armand White. No, no, I didn't see that. And I was like, Armand White, like, I'm, I'm giving you every opportunity to be like a legitimate, per- <laughs> to be a legitimate person. I don't love it. Follows. There is no way that you can compare directly It Follows and Fast and Furious 7 and say Fast and Furious 7 is a better movie than It, than it Follows. Yeah, they're, they're, two, they're two different worlds. Wait, what were you saying about this roommate? Oh, no, no. In at, uh, my residency last year, there was a guy who was a, a horror movie fan. Oh. And he kept cornering me and wanting to talk to me about like really oh, obscure I think horror I remember. movies that I've like... I've never even heard of it. He's like, well, that was the best movie of the year. He's like, and I'm like, oh, okay. I don't want to know any more about this movie that I've never heard of. What? 
Well, I think that's yeah. I don't. I, it's it's like a thing. I don't get it. Like I'm obviously a super fan of the genre, but like I could tell you this: a horror, no horror movie breaks my top five because like I could just accept that like horror movie. Even my number six horror movies barely counts as a horror. I don't consider Silence of the Lambs a horror movie. What are you um, doing? You're giving so much away. <laughs> It doesn't matter. Um, like, you know, it's it, it's clearly in a genre that requires a certain degree of, I don't want to say personality, a certain degree of um, affordability from its audience. Mm-hmm. Like its audience has to be in a certain mindset um, like I don't, I, I don't think it follows works for the casual horror fan. Like the the person who just wants to see a regular horror movie, day to day horror movie. Um, um, it, it just works. It, it works for I think a really limited scope of of horror people. But yeah, I mean, I think to that point, I think what I want more than anything out of a genre movie is consistency. And I understand what you're saying about why this movie um, kind of. Uh, Askews consistency in the in the favor of making a, a, a point, um, but because it does kind of establish itself firmly in in a certain genre and amongst its tropes, um, I kept waiting for that consistency, or I kept hoping for that consistency to coalesce into a, a, like a broader message or tone or feeling that I could kind of feel something uh, about, and I just never got it. And that's not, that's not, not true. Of, that's not like this movie is not the only movie that's ever done that. I think it's just like a genre movie thing. Um, it's just like the same. Yeah. We've talked about this with like, you know, uh, Django Unchained. We're like, we're kind of behind this movie for a certain point. And then when Quentin Tarantino decides to kind of just like throw hit the consistency of tone and and his and his motifs out the window, then I'm out. You know what I mean? Then it just kind of takes the whole movie apart. Um, uh, which is the, you know, that happens to tons of movies. Tons of movies are, are go along as one kind of movie for a while and then they throw a wrench in it and then you stop caring. Well, that's the thing. I, I think, I think this movie's niche. I, I do think this movie's niche. Like, like it follows is, is something that is for a really particular type of person. <laughs> are you, you say I'm very sad when you say that. No, I, I just you even had kind always of a sad face. No, the reason I said it's that sadly is because I tried to. I, I try. Oh God, I, I have this problem. I have this thing with horror. Right, I fall into the 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 anti horror the the horror tropes of of the fan. I should say mm-hmm. where I like try to show somebody something, and I'm like, dude, you don't get it. Like, like watch this, and they're like, they watch it, and they're like, yeah, and I'm like, no, they're like, right, because. There's like so much required. I remember, do you know who Lee Hardcastle is? <laughs> yeah. Um, he's like a claymation guy. Um, so there's a a really great like little short he does. Okay. Where it is the Simpsons um, intro, but they are. The Simpsons are then all murdered by an it fall uh it your next style clan of bandits, like uh invaders. Um I feel like I've seen you know, so home invaders. 
I, pro- I may have showed it to you at some point. Maybe. <laughs> um, but I remember I showed this to one of my friends and my girlfriend at the time, or the girl I was, I was seeing at the time. Um, and um, not girlfriend, we're, we're just seeing each other. Um, and they, they both looked at me in a sense of horror, like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, it's funny because it's your, and I, I started saying it's your, and then I realized, oh, do either of you guys have seen your next, that's a really particular horror movie to watch. None of this makes sense to you, and I look like a psychopath. <laughs> and I, I notice, I, I notice myself like falling into that, like, like I've, like I said, like a pre-Oscar thing. I got really drunk on Fuzzy Baby Ducks one night, watching um, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and unfortunately, The Shape of Water. Oh yeah, I remember that. I wasn't was there, but I remember hearing it. And then, and then I made them watch. Uh, and then our friend came over and then I made them watch like the first 30 minutes of it follows with me commentating on them about every single moment of horror that was going on and why it was such an important part film of the genre until I then realized in a moment of clarity what I was doing and, and apologized and then fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> um, I will say this, this movie for sure definitely brings out the, uh, Oh, right. Uh, this is this is a very particular film, or <laughs> very. I think it's a very particular film for a very particular audience. Well, you know, we're gonna get we'll we'll get there with, uh, and uh, we'll have the same things. I, I'm assuming my number four is gonna be a movie that, uh, maybe even my number one, where I'm just like, yeah, it's the best movie ever made, and you're just like, it isn't. It, <laughs> as a matter of fact, it is not. Um, no, intellectually, I can appreciate your number four. I just don't connect to it. And your number one, I um, didn't like at first, but I uh, think my worldview has changed enough to where my take on it will change. Um, none of your films in your top ten outside your number six are films that I have any problems with as films. Number six. Your number six is the only one I'm like, yeah. No, I have to. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. I think I. I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after. Okay. I'll tell you after the podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. But, we, uh, we've all been. But I feel like. I, I mean, I, I, I could, I could, I could talk more about this movie. I, I think we've kind of run its course. <laughs> 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 I mean, this is definitely something where, at a drunk night at some bar at Archie Boards after five sea hags and. Uh, a plate, a plate of, of nachos. nachos. We would be told we were kicked out. Well, um, and then JP I, would. I think, I think I think an hour and ten minutes on the podcast is. We've we would have had JP. JP would just be sitting there the entire time, just listening to us. Oh, this is much longer. Um, than, this is much longer than an hour and ten minutes. On just it follows. On just it follows. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. Would have made something Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, we've talked about this for for enough time to where I think. I think our views have been expressed. Like I said, I could I could go on this for multiple hours, but I'd like to get like three people to listen to this podcast this week. Um, <laughs> so I think I think that kind of covers the bases. If you have anything to say about it, follows please do, because I will just tweet a storm or email you or send you an essay or God knows what I'll do. It did. I'm clearly nervous about what I do at. Uh, at Film Pivotal is our Twitter, and our email would be Tom. 
pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the movies that we've talked about uh, on our top 100 list or a list of the beers that we drank or how to subscribe or how to get to our Twitter if you have a really big problem with Twitter. Um, uh, I'm sleepy too. Uh, until next week or whenever we talk to you again, let's just you know, hope everything in Connecticut keeps going in the opposite direction of the whole rest of the country. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're doing, we're doing well with it. I did mean, you, numbers are still going down. Did you see that, uh, that graphic that Ned Lamont put up showed today when he was talking about schools? We are, I the, didn't see the graphic. For we are the, we are the one state in, in America where cases have dropped by 50%. Like, oh, really? yeah, we're the one, we're the best state Our- in America. <laughs> I say we just put a wall around around Connecticut. Well, we're trying. We are actively trying to there's do it. I'm gonna say it. There's enough good people in Connecticut. I shouldn't. I, I'm glad my parents listen to this podcast because they disagree with that strongly. <laughs> put a wall around it. Just give us. We get food delivered by raft, and we'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll get a bunch. We'll get a bunch of. We'll get a bunch of of young boys to walk three miles an hour from Maine with food on their back to deliver to us, and if they walk too slow, we'll just shoot them. Stephen King would approve. Nice one. Okay. Uh, excuse me, Richard Bachman. Which, oh yeah, Richard Bachman. Sorry, yeah. Um, Stephen King. Um, but until then, until that happens, folks, uh, uh, see a movie, drink a beer, and uh, talk to you. Next week.